This is the one I got to glide. All right, the chair has called the meeting to order. If you could please rise if you're able for the Pledge of Allegiance. Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. President Elias, if I can call roll. Commissioner Walker. Here. Commissioner Benedicto. Present. Commissioner Yanez. Commissioner Byrne. Here. Commissioner Yee. Here. Uh, Vice President Carter Overstone is en route. President Lyons, you have a quorum. Also here with us tonight, we have Chief Scott from the San Francisco Police Department and Diana Rosenstein, Chief of Staff for the Department of Police Accountability. Thank you. First item is going to be general public comment. At this time, the public is now welcome to, make, to address the commission for up to two minutes on items that do not appear on tonight's agenda but are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the police commission. Under police commission rules of order, during public comment, neither police or DPA personnel nor commissioners are required to respond to questions by the public but may provide a brief response. Comments or opportunities to speak during public comment period are available via phone by calling 415-655-0001 and entering access code 2482-800-7508. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in either of the following ways. Email the Secretary of the Police Commission at sfpd.commission at sfgov.org, or written comments may be sent via U.S. Postal Service to the Public Safety Building located at 1245 3rd Street, San Francisco, California, 94158. For members of the public that would like to make public comment, please approach the podium or press star 3. And President Elias appears there is no public comment. Great. Next item, please. I believe we're taking an item out of order. Yes, ma'am. Line item seven will be taken, which is presentation by the Center of Policing Equity, CPE, report and analysis on traffic stops. Discussion. And Scarlett, can you hear us? I can actually get us started. Uh, Scarlett and I are doing a dual presentation here. Um, can we get our slides up, or is that something that we have to share? Yes, please. Thank we have great technical support, so they are on it as we speak. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. We are not tech geniuses, so. Well, by tech support, I mean Sergeant Youngblood, so. <laughs> oh, well, we appreciate Sergeant Youngblood. There you go. Thank you for joining us. We know you're on East Coast time, so that's why we're taking this out of order. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having us. Um, I am Charlotte Reesing. I am the Government Affairs Manager at Center for Policing Equity. And Scarlett Neath is my colleague. She's the Policy Research Manager at Center for Policing Equity. Um, and again, thank you for uh, allowing us to present on some of our findings from our recent white paper on redesigning traffic safety. So some of these are basically recommendations to address racial disparities in traffic crashes as well as enforcement. And if I can get the next slide, please. So just an overview of what we'll be going over today. Um, I'll introduce the organization, Center for Policing Equity, 
we will go over holistic traffic safety recommendations. Uh, we will do a particular focus on pretextual stops, um, since I think that's most of interest to the folks here. Um, and then we'll have some time for questions at the end. Next slide, please. So a little about Center for Policing Equity. Uh, so we are a research and action group that uses science and social science to promote racial justice and public safety systems. We work to create safer communities by reducing the footprint of law enforcement. And we have partnered with over 60 law enforcement agencies in 30 states in the United States. Uh, so we really rely on science, um, and that science says that situations predict bias much more than individual biases. Uh, so we've developed these recommendations um, within a, in the most uh, scientific way that we can. Uh, we used our social scientists on staff and uh, did a significant amount of research into reforms happening all over the country. And we developed the recommendations to address dual, crisis, dual crises that we are currently seeing in the country, which are increases in crashes and also racial disparities in both crashes and enforcement. Next slide, please. So this, this is kind of an overview of what we're going to be talking about today, more specifically in terms of our recommendations. Uh, we will talk about ending pretextual stops. That's one of our recommendations. Scarlett will be going into that more later. Um, investing in public health approaches to road safety. And this is really part of a holistic approach to improving equity and road safety. Um, and that's important to us because we want everyone to be safer and safer in an equitable way. Uh, some examples of public health approaches to road safety are things as simple as extending yellow lights, uh, roundabouts, which are much safer than traditional intersections and multiple things like that. Um, limiting the use of fines and fees, which we will also get into and provide some examples a little bit later. Piloting alternatives to armed enforcement. This includes, this includes civilian enforcement of traffic violations, uh, which multiple jurisdictions around the country are looking into right now, but also can include things like, uh, like photos and uh, enforcement that doesn't involve uh, pulling someone over and giving them a ticket, but maybe mailing them a ticket. And Im lastly, improving data collection and transparency. And in particular is the only way that we have an ability to see what impacts any of our current initiatives have um, and also see where the issues lie. Uh, where are the dangerous intersections? Um, how can we address those? What are the most impactful way to address those? And finally, transparency. Um, so just improving the way that we communicate with communities and uh, make it clear why we are instituting different approaches and different initiatives. Next slide, please. So here's a little bit more about limiting fines and fees. Uh, so these are a few of our recommendations from our report. The first is repair vouchers for equipment violations. So repair vouchers, uh, in case people aren't aware who are currently listening, uh, provide people with an opportunity to go and get things on their car fixed without giving them a ticket. 
And multiple jurisdictions around the country uh, are, are really uh, utilizing repair vouchers, including uh, Chatham County, Georgia, as well as the State Patrol of Minnesota, uh, both of which are actually partnering with an organization called Lights On that helps them uh, basically actualize a voucher system where people can come in, get their car fixed, uh, and not have a finer fee on top of whatever it costs to get the things fixed. And this makes our roads safer uh, because we have all these things fixed for people and it makes it easy for them. The second here, we have uh, reminder notifications or income-based fee waivers for expired registrations. So reminder notifications would just be a way for government, like the government to essentially communicate with citizens about timing of registrations being expired or anything else like that. Um, and then income-based fee waivers for expired registration uh, would essentially be a system in which uh, we can address expired registrations, but in a way that's equitable. Uh, you know, 50, $100 means different things to people who make different amounts of money. And finally, here we have driver's license suspension restoration programs. Uh, Durham actually has a wonderful, Durham, North Carolina, has a wonderful program that they have started called DEER, and it helps people resolve old traffic violations and also traffic debt that have caused long-term uh, driver's license suspensions. And so those are important because driving in lots of communities is vital for people to get to work, to pick up their kids, and these programs can help people who have had suspensions for long periods of time or even short periods of time get back to their day-to-day -day activities uh, and solve some of these issues that get them kind of caught in the system. Next slide, please. So what are pretextual stops? Now we're getting into the meat. Uh, so pretext stops are when police pull someone over for a minor traffic violation in order to investigate an unrelated offense for which the officer lacks reasonable suspicion. And next slide, please. And this is just a little diagram, very simple, obviously, um, to sort of show what pretext stops are and where a lot of disparities exist in pretext stops as well as low-level, non-safety-related non stops. So as you can see, not every equipment license registration violations, I'm sure everyone here is aware, are pretext stops, but some are. Uh, and that intersection where there are these non-safety related uh, issues or violations that are happening and folks are getting pulled over, that is where we see extremely high racial disparities uh, in, the, in who gets stopped. Um, and tend to be an insufficient, inefficient use of uh, police department's resources. And I'm gonna turn it over to Scarlett now to get into more of pretext stops. Is my audio working now? Yes. Okay, wonderful. So next slide, please. <clears throat> so I'm um, going to talk a little bit about who is affected by pretextual stops. And we at CBE analyze policing data from Dozens of jurisdictions nationwide and consistently over and over see that white drivers 
are more likely to be pulled over for safety related reasons such as speeding while block drivers are more likely to be pulled over for equipment license and registration violations that have a high likelihood of um, being a pretextual stop. Um, we also consistently see that black drivers are searched at higher rates at traffic stops, but those searches are less likely to produce contraband than searches of white drivers. Um, and we, there's some research that sheds light on um, the extent to which pretextual stops have a real crime fighting benefit. And we see here in this data set from Carol, North Carolina that um, the yield of um, all these stops uh, producing um, meaningful contraband enough to generate an arrest is very, very low at 0.03% of all of the traffic stops analyzed over a time period. Um, <clears throat> next slide, please. So our recommendations to address this issue and limit pretextual stops um, come from a few different approaches, which I'll be talking about in turn. We first recommend that police departments ban pretextual stops. And then we also recommend that cities and states pass laws restricting low-level traffic stops um, in kind of an aligned fashion. Um, and then we also recommend that these reforms are enforced and monitored. Next slide, please. So first, we recommend that police departments prohibit stops that are pretexts for criminal investigation. Um, and several police departments nationwide have done this to uh, various degrees, including in Oakland, Los Angeles, Minneapolis, and Fayetteville, North Carolina, to name a few. Um, and we are seeing evidence that this is effective at reducing uh, racial disparities in traffic stops. One academic study um, of Fayetteville shift away from pretext stops showed that the share of non-safety related stops um, as, a to as a share of all traffic stops dropped from 56% to 32%. Racial disparities were reduced, traffic crashes were reduced, and crime was not measurably affected. To be effective at addressing the subjective nature of pretextual stops though, we have a few um, recommendations for any policy that um, police departments are putting in place. Um, first, we recommend that the policy clearly state that it is banning all pretextual stops with no exceptions. We also recommend that the policy encourage compliance with this um, shift by also stating that officers are not allowed to ask investigative questions or conduct a consent-based search without independent cause to do so. So basically kind of defining the implications of this change on um, police behavior. Finally, we recommend that um, law, law enforcement leadership communicate the intent of this reform. Why, why is it happening? And that should really center around limiting racial bias and unnecessary enforcement. And that can really foster the necessary culture shift to see this change made in day-to-day -day practice. Next slide, please. So another approach to banning pretextual stops you might have heard of is legislative action um, to um, 
define certain categories of stops, which police are no longer allowed to enforce, as has been done in Virginia and um, some cities in uh, Pennsylvania. And this can really help reinforce any police-led reform being made in the department, as well as um, de-incentivize pretextual stops where the departments have not yet made that kind of shift. This um, change ending low-level stops is also important for reprioritizing enforcement and reducing the volume of stops that are um, made to black and brown people. Um, and while evidence on this intervention is emerging, there has been a report out of Virginia showing a 7.5% reduction in total stop volume. However, a, the racial disparities and soft rates remained unchanged. And so this really isn't a panacea to rooting out racial bias, of course, but can be a significant step forward. Next slide. So to monitor uh, compliance with any departmental policy changes, we encourage um, a policy that officers are required to record narrative descriptions of their justification for each stop and search that they conduct um, that details their reason for doing so. And research has shown that this can really help increase uh, compliance with a policy change. Those reports should be uh, reviewed daily by a supervisor. We also encourage localities to track the outcomes of any reform being made through data analysis. Um, to make sure it's achieving its uh, intended goal. And fortunately, California has really strong data collection standards um, that will be helpful in doing so. Next slide. So that is our brief overview, but for our uh, full detailed white paper on these recommendations and examples and our evidence and rationale for making each of these um, suggestions, uh, a link to this report here is provided, and then you can also feel free to reach out to us, and we're happy to answer any questions you have um, right now. Well, thank you again for being here and for presenting this report. Um, I am a huge fan of your work. I know that you have, uh, the department has uh, engaged you in other services, um, and it's been a very, I think, productive and fruitful um, engagement, and you've been able to provide the department with great data analysis and recommendations, and this um, is along those lines as well. I just had a couple questions for you. One of the questions I had is, um, based on your research and experience in this field, um, do you think that banning pretext stops will pose a safety risk um, on the community? And the reason I ask that is, in discussions uh, while working on the policy, there have been a lot of concerns from officers who feel that implementing a ban on pretext stops or specifically outlining which stops are going to be prohibited um, is taking away their tools and their ability to do their jobs and will eventually affect public safety. And so I'm hoping that maybe you can speak a little bit more to that um, and address their concerns. Uh, based on all of the work you've done in this field and the experience that you have? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we certainly um, understand that concern and have heard it from 
um, many law enforcement officials we work with um, and understand that they obviously want to be able to continue doing the important work that they do. Um, our view is that the bar being set of having reasonable suspicion to make a stop is really not a high bar to clear. And it sometimes when folks are um, describing situations that they're worried about not being able to make, it's actually not what we're um, suggesting through this reform. It's not actually a true pretextual stop. So sometimes there's a little bit of um, maybe gut reaction there that would not be borne out in the actual policy change. And I would just um, say that a lot of states through the courts have actually fully banned pretext stops for a number of years. And there was not any, um, you know, I think it was a, a culture shift, but not any measurable um, uh, negative effect on crime in those communities. So for example, Washington state banned pretextual stops um, in their state court, state Supreme Court from 1999 through 2012. Um, and the studies that came out of that showed really uh, significant drops in racial disparities. Thank you. And then the other, have you been following Los Angeles? Um, there was an article in the LA Times yeah. recently about um, some of the outcomes that have been found based on their policy that they implemented with respect to banning pretext stops. Yes, I actually just um, read that article today and saw that I think the drop was from 21% of stops to 12% of stops. Um, being pretextual, which seems really promising. Um, we haven't, you know, worked with Los Angeles or followed that too, too closely, um, other than the public, uh, you know, media reports, but it does seem um, certainly a great step. Yeah, and it also seems in line with your other research and the um, what you yeah. described earlier about it not um, the ban on pretext stop not having any significant effect on um, crime in terms of, um, but by having this ban. So I think that was also promising mm -hmm. um, as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, just to the point of crime, in addition to the that study. Um, the Fayetteville study I mentioned where there was no noticeable change in crime after um, the reform that was made. There's also a big um, analysis out of Nashville that showed that uh, uh, how rarely pretextual stops lead to the discovery of drugs or weapons. So just again, this is, you know, this is taking place across the country and we're seeing kind of consistent patterns. Um, that indicate that there would not be a big impact on public safety um, if, for, if more communities adopted this change. And, and I'll just jump in quickly. Yeah. I think um, in addition to there being very low yield rates frequently for uh, pretext stops, I think one of the focuses for CPE is really that we want police to be able to do their jobs and clear homicide rates and protect people. And this is an area where based on our research, we haven't, we, we don't believe 
that there will be an increase in crime, as Scarlett has said in all, those, all these locations, there haven't been. Um, and we're hoping that the volume of these stops being lowered gives police the opportunity to, um, to, to really do their jobs and protect people and communities. Thank you, I, I appreciate that because as we are all, and I think every profession facing staffing shortages, that's one of the you know issues that we need to keep in mind about people being able to do their job with the limited resources they have. So I'm gonna turn it over to my colleagues. Commissioner Benedicto, thank you again. <clears throat> Thank you, President Elias, and thank you both uh, to Charlotte and Scarlett for your time and, and this analysis. Uh, we're really grateful for this work. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to ask a little bit about looking at your recommendations to limit pretext stops. You have prohibit officers from using traffic stops as a pretext for criminal investigation. You have banned stops for low-level violations, and you have collect data and enforce reforms. Why is it important that all, that all of those be adopted as part of a holistic approach? and not just one or two of, of, of the three? I can jump in for this one. Yeah. Um, I think the holistic approach is really important because we want people to be safe on the roads. Uh, we want there to be increased safety, and the holistic approach uh, implements road safety uh, measures that, that are evidence-based and that actually improve uh, rates of crashes and rates of fatalities in crashes. And so having that two-pronged approach really makes sure that we reduce some of the disparities in enforcement that we're seeing right now, but while also making people safer and implementing things that are evidence-based and that really can improve rates of death fatalities and crashes as well as crashes themselves. Thank you. And I'd like to uh, follow up on that and say, look specifically at recommendation two, which is ban stops for low-level violations. I know you spoke a little bit in your presentation about how that can reinforce the prohibition. Could you speak a little bit more about why you think that, that that second component is an important part of your recommendations? Yeah, I can take that. Um, <clears throat> so first of all, as um, you know, we saw in our little diagram earlier on, like not every pretextual stop is a low-level violation and not every low-level traffic violation is a pretextual stop. And I think um, the intent behind uh, suggesting both of those reforms is to cover as broad a swath as possible of those two factors, those two kinds of stops that are really driving racial disparities um, in traffic enforcement. Um, and I think it's also in recognition of the fact that departmental level change can be, um, you know, there's 18,000 police departments in this country. It can be incremental to suggest policy change one by one. And when something like a state of Virginia enacts um, this legislative reform, that can really, um, you know, have an immediate impact on a lot of people by um, taking a lot of kinds of stops off the table and then also um, incentivize, you know, police departments in that state to be re-examining their policies. Um, so it's kind of two bites at the apple, I think. And um, uh, the third recommendation we make about um, enforcing these changes and reinforcing them and monitoring them, again, speaks to 
you know, these are complex issues. These are cultural shifts that will take time. Um, and it's important to, you know, make sure that they're really happening. Um, and we know it's not a, a light switch, if you will, sometimes. That makes sense. So it's, oh, I'm sorry, please go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to quickly uh, jump in and add that these low-level stops, I think that sometimes there's apprehension about what low-level stops mean. And I think from, if you read, like, our report and our recommendations are very clear on what we mean by low-level stop, and these are not safety infractions. These are not things that make people less safe on the road immediately. And so we think that there are other ways that we can handle some of these uh, infractions or violations that don't increase disparities um, and or can aid people to actually fix their cars, get these things settled um, to make everyone safer on the roads. That makes sense. So it, it sounds like then that I, I think that it was described as the, the sort of all the elements can reinforce each other, ha having each of those elements in place. That That's very helpful to know. Um, do you think then if, uh, you know, I, I know uh, President Elias talked a little bit about the LAPD policy, which is focused more on providing articulable reasons for pretext stops, but doesn't identify low-level violations, or, uh, like, is it important that those elements be done together to sort of maximize the effect based on your research? Um, which elements, sorry? The, both the prohibition from using stops and, and the ban for low-level violations. So I, as I understand it, the LAPD policy, for example, doesn't have anything to say about low-level violations. It simply requires articulable information before conducting the stop. Right. I can take this. Oh, sorry. Yes. Scarlett, if you want go to go ahead. ahead. No, no. Okay. Um, I think, you know, something is better than nothing. Either of these reforms on their own uh, are likely to decrease volumes of stops we've seen across the country that they do, and that decreases the burden on black and brown drivers and decreases the disparities in which they get pulled over. Um, doing both together, I think, would amplify results and disparities. Thank you. Um I wanted to ask about, I know that President Elias talked about the role of pretext stops and serious crimes. I know in your white paper you have uh, a statement that says pretext stops do not improve traffic safety. Would you mind speaking to that a little bit? Um, yes, sure. So a pretext stop by definition is, you know, one in which um, uh, an officer is pulling over someone with the ultimate goal of looking into a more serious crime. Um, so the, the, like a speeding violation can be a pretextual stop and that would be um, related to traffic safety, but by and large, the vast majority of pretextual stops are for low level equipment, license, registration, um, violations and um, by spending so much time enforcing those kind of um, violations and not doing the kind of enforcement that is directly related to traffic safety, such as um, high visibility enforcement for drunk driving or um, speeding violations, um, the point is just that it, it is kind of uh, shifting priorities 
in traffic safety that are not um, advancing the goals of um, dangerous driving and things that are really um, producing traffic crashes. Does that answer your question? Uh and I can also jump in here as well, um, just, and, and I, I'm harping on it, but again, the yield rates of contraband or and even arrest rates for pretext stops are extremely low, and that is across the board. Um, so in our mind, this is not something that's really improving public safety to a significant, to an ex not a significant amount, but perhaps not much at all. Um, and Again, as Scarlett said, there's other places where we think those resources could be deployed that would actually vastly improve public safety. Thank you so much, and thank you to you both for your work. I encourage any members of the public, I know there's been a lot of public discussion about this proposed policy, uh, to look at the supporting documents on the commission website and look at the full white paper that the Center for Policing Equity put out. It's it's not terribly long, it's 27 pages, but it's, it's quite readable and has a lot of really great evidence-based um, recommendations. And it's, it, it's reassuring to see that all, already our draft policy is in the direction of those changes. And I really liked uh, something they said about amplifying the effect of reducing disparities by doing multiple recommendations. And so uh, thank you again both. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. We, uh, now turning it over to Commissioner Walker. Thank you, uh, President Elias, and thank you for your presentation. Um, I just have a, a couple of um, questions. I, too, was interested in the Los Angeles um, results because it does seem to, to me that they had pretty good results for doing what they're doing, which is sort of putting what they're doing on tape, becoming more conscious of that. Um, I know that you are recommending kind of three different um, levels of action here. And I wonder if, if you have the data that actually supports that using all three is better than just using the first one um, or, the, or you know, doing what Los Angeles is doing or whether, I mean, are there cities that have actually done pilot programs so that they maybe look at what's happening by doing one and then maybe in another area doing three different versions. Um, because I do feel like it's kind of like when, you know, I have a cold and I take, you know, three different medications, like two, two different vitamins and, and also an aspirin and I feel better. I don't really know which one it was. And um, these things, you know, as much as I hear that you, the data that you have doesn't have consequences. I would, I would not expect it would have consequences of increasing crime, but I, I worry that it might create different traffic, traffic consequences um, and maybe crime-solving data, uh, crime-solving statistics. Um, and I, you know, I, I also know that you're using cities that aren't San Francisco, so um, you know, I just, it, it's kind of all scattershot here, not to use a phrase, but it is. It's kind of not separated. So um, to the first question, do you have details that separate out all of these different approaches and which one works or do they work better in, in combination or is that just theoretic? 
Um, and I can take some of this. I think Scarlett's more of our numbers gal, but uh, we do have evidence base uh, specifically for each individual reform. As far as I know, there isn't a jurisdiction that currently is doing all of these. Scarlett, is that correct? Um, yeah, I, I don't know of any. I mean, I there might be police departments in Virginia that have really embraced, you know, this reform in line with um, the legislation that was passed, but I don't know off the top of my head. For each individually, we do we have seen results in cities yeah. that have implemented. Um, I love the multiple medicines during a cold analogy. I think for us, though, each of these individually, we have seen the bias and uh, disproportionate <laughs> impact that results. Um, or at least in terms of pretext stops and low-level violations. And so we know that both of those individually are things that uh, have a, an outsized impact on black and brown people. Right. Uh, and the, in terms of the, tr the, the general sort of holistic traffic safety reforms, those also have very significant evidence base. Um, and there are lots of jurisdictions um, implementing a lot of those reforms, but uh, and, and and actually we can share. I think we do have we do have more specifics, so we'd be happy to share that uh, with the commission um, if people want the wonky statistics. <laughs> I'd like to see that. Um, you know, it just I, I feel like um, some of the issues that we're seeing in some of our more crowded areas have to do with you know, sharing sidewalks and, you know, different um, sort of traffic issues that might be affected by some of, by sort of eliminating banning stops altogether for low, the low level that are actually being thought of here. I mean, it may not be what you all have, have done. So um, I feel like um, I'm, I'm interested in the Los Angeles data just because I feel like um, it shows it shows potential for really reducing the kind of things we're talking about here. I also really like the information about being able to help people solve the issues they have around these minor uh, traffic issues of like registration and um, maybe even getting insurance. I mean, having having grants available, having help for that. Um, is really, I think, part of the solution. One of the concerns I have is that I don't believe that we have an infrastructure set up um, to actually do these kind of mail-in mail tickets for these kind of things. Um, I don't think it's a good solution to not enforce it altogether, um, but the concept of being able to send people tickets instead of pulling them over for things like registration and things like that makes sense to me, but um, I, I feel like that's why I'm sor sort of interested in the concept of pilots, pilot programs to test what works and to make sure our system is sufficient to make it work efficiently. So um, I think it would be really good to sort of think about that if other cities did pilots and then you know, tested different things that might work in different areas or, or in our city specifically with our traffic things or traffic issues. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Every jurisdiction has unique needs and will need unique a unique combination of solutions. Um, I think, you know, obviously our our report is aiming to speak to multiple communities and ideas for you all to, you know, assess these recommendations and see what what makes sense for you. Um, I would just also say that, you know, the the first kind of reform that we offer, the police-led um, banning of pretextual stops, mm -hmm. would be kind of the most direct way to ban pretextual stops, if you will. Yeah. Um, and that is, you know, what Los Angeles is doing, and I think they're having um, good results because they are doing some accountability measures with asking the officers to document their reasons right. for doing stops, which is what we recommend in the in the third recommendation we presented on. Um, but again, we know that this is this is a tricky issue, and it's a really big culture shift for some agencies and police have been used to having this as basically a crime fighting tool for a long time um so the legislative um reform of low-level stops is kind of like the second way to encourage and um see this kind of change take place um while also communicating that you know shifting enforcement priorities and traffic violations is also important because there's a lot of deaths on the road, there's rising traffic fatalities right now, um, and pulling people over for sort of these low-level issues is not really what we want to be seeing police spend their valuable time on. So it's it's complex and multifaceted, but we do think there's value in um, multiple approaches here. And I'll also jump in here. Uh, I think in particular, in terms of not having systems set up, that definitely makes sense. We encourage jurisdictions that we work with and talk to uh, to have a really robust dialogue with other agencies that uh, can help set up these systems and can let people know what, you know, what currently exists, what the capabilities are. Uh, and a lot of jurisdictions of various sizes have set up these new systems. And I recognize that that's not nothing. Um, that can be a big ask. And that's also why we, uh, in our report, specifically ask for investment in these alternative systems to make sure that uh, these things are still getting taken care of, but in an effective and more equitable way. Uh, and just one last thing on this, in terms of some of the particularly like voucher repair uh, repair voucher systems. Uh, there are organizations out there that have been helping jurisdictions sort of actualize this and make it happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it sounds like from um, initial uh, implementation of some of these that these jurisdictions are finding it slightly easier than they thought it would be. Uh, they ha there's lots of un um, sort of unexpecting allies you can have in some of these. There's repair shops and larger uh, car uh, car repair organizations and companies that are willing to kind of step in and help with this because of the intense racial disparities that come with classic enforcement of them. Thank you. 
And just to let you know, Commissioner Walker, during our working group, these were the ideas that came. Um, and I think Chief and um, several officers, Monty, um, were uh, very informative to the group in terms of the resources and what used to be available to residents for these type of uh, violations. So we've been working on that front uh, as well. Um, and it's refreshing to know that we will, you know, that we, our policy may be different and groundbreaking as similar past policies like 501, the cardboard restraint, things like that. So we are a pioneer of the group. Um, director, actually acting director Henderson, Ms. Rosenstein. Good evening, President Elias. Thank you. And thank you for the presentation. I just have one quick comment uh, or clarification that I would like to ask on behalf of the public. I know that your presentation mentions uh, banning low-level stops, but there's no specific explanation of what that universe is. So I'm wondering if you can point us or direct us and the public in the direction of what your universe for low-level stops looks like so that we can uh, juxtapose your uh, research and the um, infractions or, you know, uh, traffic violations that you researched and that you talked about uh, for our jurisdiction. So I would actually say we would not come up with a list of categories of stops that all communities should um, not be making. I think we have some ideas based on what other jurisdictions have done, things like objects dangling from a rear view mirror, um, uh, single broken taillight. Um, I'm forgetting others off the top of my head, but um, the point being, uh, I think it's important that each uh, jurisdiction who's thinking about this reform look at their their data and their stops um, being made to identify the ones where they're not seeing a clear connection to public safety benefits um, in terms of traffic uh, safety and that they're also seeing um, high racial disparities as a sort of initial set of stops to sort of take off the table. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Yee. Thank you very much there, uh, President uh, Cindy Elias. I have a couple questions to ask. Um, looking at the uh, limited use of fines and fees, um, this out of curiosity is whether you have a set of budget or a projected budget for the city of San Francisco of our size uh, regards to the violations that do come through, uh, repairing um, equipment violations, you know, uh, base fee for expired registration, and then driver's license suspensions, and a host of others. Because I think it uh, pertains to the state, uh, uh, I guess, mandate for the violations that's set forward. I don't know if we do that here locally, uh, add additional fines to that, but this this how your uh, your um, investigation whether you have um, in California whether we have done that um, uh, limit the use of fines. Maybe Scarlett does again. She's our numbers lady. Um, I'm not aware. I don't know specifically for California. Um, I would definitely, and we can share these resources uh, with the commission after this, but I would definitely look at 
Um, there's a few organizations that focus on fines and fees, and um, there's one large coalition called Freedom to Drive, uh, which uh, essentially is a group of organizations and corporations that are looking to end license suspensions for fines and fees. Um, I think California a, has ended that. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> um, in terms of some of these other reforms, I'm not, Scarlett, are you aware of specific Yeah, okay. so I don't, um, obviously, you know, California is um, one of many states and then there's tons of jurisdictions within California, so I'm not sure the exact nature of the fines and fees system in um, San Francisco, but I do know that California um, is piloting an online tool that lets people look up their traffic ticket and request a reduction in the amount owed, um, a payment plan, more time to pay, or the option of doing community service instead of paying. And that's um, saved a really significant amount of money and reduced fines and fees for participants who are mostly below the poverty line. Um, that's actually an example we highlight in our, in our report to minimize the burden of fines and fees for um, people who are assessed them. Do, do you have a, an idea about the amount of funding that would be required to address these issues regarding the, the fines and fees? It's a really good question and it's, it's um, you know, it's kind of tricky often to um, uncover the extent to which a city relies yeah. on fines and fees. Um, so I don't know offhand, but um, we'd be happy to direct you to some organizations doing more specific work in that area who could probably shed light on um, the extent to which that's been, you know, mapped out in, in San Francisco. Yeah. I, I would also just flag that I think like, again, one of the reasons why we're asking for a holistic reform is that there is a certain amount of savings uh, that would be associated with stopping pretext stops and low-level violations. And uh, and I think this is not something that we have necessarily, and actually, again, Scarlett might have more info on this, but we don't have any specific to San Francisco. Um, but we view those in, as a duality, um, there can be some evening out. And uh, again, also for a functioning, uh, for a functioning system, hopefully uh, systems shouldn't be funded by fines and fees of, of people who are involved in the system. Um, that, that hopefully would be something that would be funded by taxpayer money and by the city or jurisdiction. And I actually, sorry, to, to, to add on to that, I think um, one of the reasons why we say that that shouldn't be something that's relied on is because it creates an inverse incentive for jurisdictions to maintain fines and fees and to levy them without things like fee waivers or income-based reductions. Um, and we, we don't really agree with that calculus. Um, we'd like people to be, to be assessed uh, fees in a way that um, they actually can be able to pay them. Uh, and um, and again, I think that's adding to our public safety concern of um, like a $200 ticket for different people means different things. And for some people that means that they can't buy groceries that week. 
Um, and that's not a situation that we believe people should be in. Yeah, uh, I'll just follow up with the last questions on pilot uh, alternative to arm enforcement. <laughs> is that individually uh, civilians stopping vehicles or is that just as they will see new technologies, uh, I guess, capturing the vehicles, uh, ID or license plates? We have multiple options outlined in our report. Um, I think we do have some apprehension about autom automated enforcement. Uh, specifically, they have been rolled out in ways that are not necessarily equitable. Lots of cities have seen many more automated traffic enforcement um, cameras in uh, localities that have higher black and brown and uh, lower income uh, folks. And um, so that's something that we caution. Um, and also, there's varying effectiveness um, in the automated enforcement, but but it is something that I think if if you can see uh, a marked like if it's evidence based, there's a marked decrease in some sort of infraction that's actually a safety violation, um, and it's rolled out in an equitable way, and also rolled out in a way that doesn't increase surveillance on folks. Um, that is something that we talk about in our report. Uh, but I think there are other options. Uh, I actually am based in Denver, and one of the things that they do here is actually, and this avoids a lot of the, um, a lot of the surveillance uh, issues uh, that a lot of places see when they do automated enforcement through companies that they contract. Um, we actually have folks in cars that take pictures of people speeding. Um, and that, like, that's something that is an option. They, they mail the tickets afterwards. Um, and that's an alternative to armed enforcement. Um, but there, there's a few different areas there. And I don't know if Scarlett wants to add any uh, examples there or other options. But there's a few different. Civilian enforcement is something that we also talk about in the report. Um, and we do find promising. I know in, in California, um, currently, that's not something that's allowed by state law. Uh, but in line with our, with all of our recommendations, I think that that's an option that places should be looking into. Um, again, to decrease bias enforcement and uh, disproportionate impact, and also um, while still maintaining some safety guidelines and enforcement. Thank you very much. Also, to let you know, Commissioner Yi, that um, in September of 2022, this year, the San Francisco Superior Court eliminated $50 million in outstanding debt for people with late fees charged by traffic court. And this was part of a statewide uh, debt relief program enacted by the legislator under AB 199 and signed into law by Governor Newsom. So I think that the yeah. effort to you know, eliminate fines that are uh, impacting low income and uh, racial communities is there and something we're looking into. Yeah, I just hope the state has uh, funding this coming fiscal years. I think they may be a little short this year. So hopefully we can have the funds set aside for those people that are in need. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, uh, President Elias, and thank you for the presentation. This is really helpful and informative as we're uh, engaging in this process of revising and uh, addressing um, the disparities in uh, pretext stops. And as we kind of uh, noticed 
with the recent elections, you know, safety and economy and cost are at the forefront of people's minds when we make decisions. And it's really helpful to hear that those jurisdictions and those uh, states or cities that have started implementing this have not noticed an increase in um, safety issues in their, in their cities. And along those lines, um, are you aware of any cost analysis of uh, the implementation of uh, you know piloting alternatives and I know there are various ones but obviously you know San Francisco things are going to cost a little bit more we could make sure that we you know modify but is there an analysis of what this would cost to roll out if we were to implement you know those three pronged that three pronged holistic approach Um, that's a great question. I'm not aware of any cost analysis um, of rolling out these changes. I think, um, you know, departmental level policy changes are a pretty low cost um, thing to implement. It's just kind of a um, staff training and, and shifting the practice. It's not like, um, a lot of new staff is needed or or whatnot. Um, but I would just say on the cost question, we're talking, when we talk about um, the volume of potentially unnecessary traffic stops being made, um, traffic stops are the most common way that police interact with members of the public. There's 20 million people stop for a traffic violation a year. Um, so there's so much cost that goes into that that um, would be saved by by scaling it down. Um, there was actually a recent analysis of the San Diego Sheriff's Department data on officer-initiated stops for the types of traffic violations most aligned with being pretextual. And they found that a third of their officer hours, which they quantified at 43.9 million, were spent on these kind of traffic stops that result in a warning or no action taken. So just not needing to be made at all. And that's that's just a glimpse of, you know, some of the costs we're talking about here. Charlotte, do you have anything else? Yeah, I would also just flag that I think one of the options here in terms of fees is uh, income-based fees, um, which as a net uh, would not necessarily result in any um, increased costs to communities. And I also just want to flag here, there's more than just the financial cost here. And I think that's like really one of the things that um, is our fo the focus of this report and the focus of a lot of our work. Uh, the cost um, emotionally and monetarily to members of the community who are stopped, this, lar this huge number of people who live in the United States uh, who get pulled over every year um, is is difficult to quantify. Um, and again, this is something that we can see if we have um, any specifics on and can circulate after this meeting. Thank you. And I won't keep you up too much later, but I do have one other question. Um, is there or are you aware of any um, other jurisdictions that have started implementing or, or 
preventing or uh, banning pretext stops and there being a correlating improvement in their clearance rates in other, out, in other areas. In other words, we're spending all this time on pretext stops or low-level offense stops, and our hope is that that level of effort will be then invested in other areas of more severe crime. Has that been done in any other jurisdiction as far as you know? So the research on this is very limited, unfortunately. Um, that would be a fantastic study for someone to do because I would hope that you know <laughs> it would show the, the benefits of reallocating officer time. Um, the only kind of related study that I mentioned is out of Fayetteville where they were just looking at the implications on traffic safety metrics specifically and found that um, shifting away from pretextual stops um, actually reduced uh, collisions quite significantly um, in their jurisdiction because of the, you know, police's ability to do more targeted and meaningful traffic enforcement. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, I'm not aware of any studies about the implications on, you know, other kinds of um, police activity. If San Francisco implements this reform or some of these reforms, hopefully you can be the leader here. <laughs> it wouldn't be our first, so. Chief, can we do a study like that? I know that we, we've done, or the department keeps track of and has data on increments of time that officers, uh, based on their job, I think you guys used it for the staffing study, right? When, you, when the staffing study, they came and they analyzed the increments of time that an officer does task one, task two, or task mm -hmm. three? Yeah, it was a, a workload study. Um, oh, right, okay. Probably could be done. I think it would be very involved, but um, I have faith that, in you. that workload study was a huge lift, so as you all know. We, we can look at a week and then extrapolate and make some educated guesses. Great question. Um, thank you very much for your time and for your um, commitment to this effort. Uh, Commissioner Benedicto? Yes, just two quick points, um, and uh, one, I wanted to address the Acting Director Rosenstein's question about the list of stops, which is while I know CP doesn't have a specific recommendation list, if you, if you look at their white paper, footnotes 26 and 27 have uh, the list that other jurisdictions have used in Virginia and Pennsylvania, and footnote 28 has, a, has some of the prosecutor statements that include some of their lists of non-public safety stops as well. So CPE has done a good job compiling those in footnotes 26 through 28. Um, and then the second quick thing was just to, to really reiterate something that um, uh, CP just said about that we, we, a lot of our questions were focused on the monetary cost of this, but that it is important to be reminded of the, of the human cost of this, about the 20 million people that experienced stops. And, and, you know, not just the statistics, you had Philando Castile, who was stopped 47 times for routine stops before being killed in, in what was a routine stop. And so these are not without economic costs, with a third of the time being spent, they're also not without human costs. And so I think it's important for us to remember that as we, as we work toward this policy. Thank you, thank you again. Thank you, Commissioner Benedicto. Before we let uh, Scarlett and Charlotte go, I wanna give the Chief an opportunity to, do you have any other questions or comments or feedback? Uh, no questions. I read the, the report and we've been working with CPE. So I just want to thank them for coming on. I know this was, uh, they're on three hours yeah. time difference, yeah. but uh, thank you for coming on and we definitely will be in touch. Great. Great. Thank you.
Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. One more thing real quick. Well, on this topic for the chief, I actually have a question. Um, Just with regards to providing a narrative description and a justification, I know that a while ago we talked about um, there are sometimes stops that uh, officers make with no citation. There's an admonishment. There's some education there. Um, Are we, and I asked whether we were capturing that. I don't know whether we have an answer on that yet, but do we have this kind of cross-reference process right now and if we don't how far away or how hard would that be to implement here the stops where a citation is not written we still have to fill out the these RIPA data that goes to the state so that is captured in in that way uh, our internal systems I mean that that is reported so that's how we capture it um, I don't know if we've done any research to know if we're missing anything but anytime we make those stops we have to report that data to the state whether or not we cite does that include a justification for the stop itself even if it doesn't need to a citation it doesn't have that type of detail uh, and it's it's uh, anonymized so um, those are some things that i think as we get better and dig into um the things that we're working on, like the, the dashboards and all that, right? That I think we'll be able to build some of that out. So right. that's the hope, anyway. Great, thank you. All right, thank you again. Enjoy East Coast time. We're going to turn it over to public comment, please. At this time, the public is now welcome to make public comment regarding line item seven. If you'd like to make public comment, please approach the podium or press star three. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Uh, Francisco de Costa. Uh, I just turned on uh, uh, the police commission on, on this agenda item. Uh, normally, we have a number of people uh, repeat like parrots about this uh, uh, pretext stops. I look at it in another way. Uh, we cannot compare LA to San Francisco. Yep, that's true. First of all, just if we take the population. Secondly, we should uh, pay more attention to orientation of our officers where we bring the element of empathy rather than uh, try to compare Virginia uh, uh, Los Angeles and all these other places. For example, they are not as hilly as our, our, our city. We have many hills. What's uh, troubling in recent years uh, is the violence, the tents, uh, crazy people walking in the, in the middle of the street. And then we come here, you know, trying to regulate something using pretext stops. So uh, whether we like it or not, and our mayor is in charge of this, quality of life issues on our streets has gone to the hogs. So 
even though we know there's some biasness with some of the officers, we can work on that. We can work on those things. But I'm surprised your parents are not. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Hello, my name is Jean Bridges, and I volunteer with Wealth and Disparities in the Black Community, led by Felicia Jones. Commission, you didn't start the phone participation on this meeting until 545 during the CPE presentation. We've been waiting to comment ever since, since 530, over an hour. We are volunteering our busy time to call into these meetings. You've effectively cut off general public comment tonight. I'm going to make my item seven CPE comment now. The Center for Policing Equity quotes a study regarding racism and traffic stops, i.e. racial profiling. The study found that not over 99% of minor traffic stops did not produce contraband in searches. The Federal Department of Justice DOJ COPS report on SFPD called out the need to address racism in policing and stops and searches in several dozen of its report recommendations. The CPE purports that eliminating pretext stops by police, i.e. stops for minor traffic infractions, which turn into racist searches and violence, is a tactic that has been shown to significantly reduce racial disparities in stops. So why then has SFPD been fighting this? Does SFPD not want to reduce racial disparities? Is another DOJ review called for? And why are the commissioners allowing police resistance to dominate and derail the conversations in the DGO 9.01 process? According to SFPD's own data, a black San Franciscan is five times as likely to be racial pro racially profiled, i.e. stopped, as a white San Franciscan, 10 times as likely to be arrested, and 15 times as likely to experience use of force. This is why minor stops by police must cease. The CPE recommends that officers be required to record a narrative justification for each stop. We agree this should be required. They also recommend the enforcement of reforms through accountability, negative consequences for officers exhibiting racism. We agree. Accountability has been lacking from the start. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Hi, my name is Susan Buffin, and I volunteer with Wilson Disparities in the Black Community. As Jean said, we were not able to make general public comments, so I will begin my comment on the CPE report with our usual parent talk. Addressing the injustices against Black San Franciscans is urgent. I'm going to call it what it is, anti-Blackness, in terms of use of force, arrest, and racial profiling and traffic stops by SFPD. I've grown tired of talking to the police commission, to SFPD, and to the Board of Supervisors. Where's the urgency? If the tables were turned and these statistics represented white folks, I know there would be an urgency. When are you going to take responsibility and address these harsh, biased, and unjust statistics? These have been oath to uphold the law for all San Franciscans. As I said, I am tired. Not tired enough to quit, however, tired of beating a dead horse, and tired of our concerns falling on deaf ears. We've reached out to new sources who find this anti-blackness an urgency, and therefore we've sought help from Attorney General Bonta." End quote. I've heard discussion about San Francisco being unique and special, and any uh, recommendations from CPE would not be a, a one-size-fits-all. We need to have something special for San Francisco. And yet at the same time, commissioners are asking for evidence that this works in other cities and other locations in the country. Which is it? Are we special or are we waiting for other people to show us the way? I think we should just, we are special. 
and we need to take the lead on this. Put it into action as soon as you can. Thank you. And President Lyons, that is the end of public comment. Thank you. Next item, please. Uh, due to a technical difficulty, we had general public comment was not able to be done on WebEx. We're going to call general public comment one more time. If you would like to make a general public comment regarding line item one, please press star three. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. I'm sorry. I already made my comments for Jen. All right. And last call for general public comment. Please press star three. All right, President Lyons, there's no public comment. Thank you. Next item, please. Line item two, adoption of minutes, action for the meetings of October 19th, 2022, and for the meeting of November 2nd, 2022. Can I get a motion? Moved. Second. Second. Members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item two, please press star three or approach the podium. And there is no public comment. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Uh, Commissioner Yee is going to... Um, Commissioner, I'm sorry, you cannot abstain under the charter. Uh, on November 2nd, I wasn't present, so... Correct. So you can okay. either vote or ask for it to be put over for the next agenda item, for the next agenda meeting. Okay. That will be a yes. Commissioner Yee is yes, and President Elias. Yes. President Elias is yes. You have six yeses. Thank you. Next item. Yeah. Line item three, consent calendar, receive and file, action, SFPD SB 1421 and SB 16 monthly report, DPA SB 1421 and SB 16 monthly report, the collaborative reform initiative, monthly update, and the SFPD DPA quarterly document protocol, third quarter 2022. Can I get a motion? I'll make a motion to receive and file these items. Second. Second. For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item three, consent calendar, please approach the podium or press star three now. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Hello, my name is Susan Buckman, and I volunteer with Wealth and Disparities in the Black Community. California, and in particular SFPD, has some of the worst racist and violent outcomes in policing in the nation. And for generations, up until SB 1421 was passed, California had been one of the worst in terms of not releasing critical information to the public. The spirit of AB 1421 and now SB 16 to release information on racist and violent, poli racist and violent policing outcomes must be honored. SFPD is required by law to, re to release personnel information to the public. But SFPD's biggest issue has been refusing to enact accountability measures, and thus the racist statistics around racial profiling via traffic stops, use of force, and arrests have remained as high as ever. From 2016 up until the present day, what is missing is accountability. 
Accountability can't be achieved if SFPD is evading scrutiny and resisting consequences for repeat offender and or problem officers at every turn. Thank you. President Lyons, there is no more public comment. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. And President Elias? Yes. President Elias is yes. You have six yeses. Thank you. Next item. Line item four, Chief's Report Discussion. Weekly crime trends and public safety concerns. Provide an overview of offenses, incidents, or events occurring in San Francisco having an impact on public safety. Commission discussion on unplanned events and activities the Chief describes will be limited to determining whether to calendar for a future meeting. Chief Scott. Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you, Sergeant Youngblood. Are you putting on your timer? I am. <laughs> I am. Um, good evening, President Elias and Commission and Ms. Rosenstein and the public. I'll start uh, just briefly with crime trends this week. Yeah, violent crime is up overall 7%. It's a difference of about 300 crimes, 311 crimes actually, uh, from this time last year. Property crime up 6%, a difference of about just short of 3,000 crimes from this time last year. The leaders in each category uh, in terms of violent crime are robberies are up 5% and our ag assaults, aggravated assaults are up 10%. In terms of uh, property crimes, the good news is that burglaries are down 21%, but overall larceny is up about 13%. Auto burglaries remains steady at about 9%. Um, homicides, violent crime homicides, we've had 32 firearm-related homicides year-to-date, and that's down by four from this time last year. But overall, our homicides are 2% uh, up, which is a difference of one uh, from this time last year. Weapon seizures, we are at 961 guns taken off the street year to date. Of those, um, ghost guns are number 163. I'm gonna spend more time on some of the significant incidents because there's uh, some really good work that I wanna highlight uh, by SFPD officers. We did have three homicides for the week. The first one was at 3rd and LaSalle in the Bayview. Uh, that was an attempted robbery of a resident and the investigation revealed that the female subject, who was an overnight guest of her brother, gave three suspects uh, access to the complex. People, they all entered the complex, and during the incident, one of the four suspects was shot and later succumbed to those injuries. Um, our evidence at this point indicates that it was likely a, a robbery gone bad, and the shooter was actually taken into custody in this, uh, this, this case. So an arrest was made on that case, but the investigation is ongoing. Second homicide to report was on November 11th at 9.49 p.m. This was 100 block of Larson, 100 block of Larson, Larkin in the Tenderloin. It was in front of the main library. Um, an Urban Alchemy employee reported an individual in front of the library who was on the ground and did not have a pulse. A witness later came forward and say he saw, said he saw the victim arguing with a male and a female and that argument ended up in a fight. During the fight, the female punched the victim, causing him to fall to the ground where he lost consciousness and later passed away, we believe, from those injuries. Uh, he was pronounced at the hospital and no arrest has been made, but there is evidence to follow up on in that case, so I'll keep you posted as that investigation develops. Third homicide was the 700 block of Fulton in the Northern District. 
and this was on November the 12th at 8.58 p.m. Officers responded to a shot spotter activation. They located a victim lying in the street. The victim was unresponsive and had multiple gunshot wounds. Officers rendered aid, but the victim later uh, at the hospital succumbed to his injuries. There's video in the area that captured a portion of the incident, and there are numerous suspects in this incident, um, and several guns involved. Our investigators have canvassed, uh, located some evidence, and that evidence is being followed up on. So no arrest at this time, but a very active investigation is ongoing. We had a series of auto burglaries across the city. This was on November 11th on Veterans Day. Officers then observed a stolen vehicle in the area that was believed to be involved in the auto burglaries. That vehicle was stopped. The occupants uh, tried to run away. After a foot pursuit, three subjects were taken into custody. During the investigation, a large amount of stolen property was covered and multiple victims, I believe nine in all, were identified. So really good work uh, by the officers in that case. There was also a catalytic converter arrest that occurred. Uh, the incident happened on October 25th at 3.11 a.m. Northern officers um, observed a vehicle lifted off the ground by a floor jack, and individuals near the vehicle were um, under the vehicle, indicating that a catalytic converter theft was likely taking place. Two subjects were detained. However, the third subject fled, only to be taken into custody a short time later. Evidence gathered at the scene included a vehicle and equipment used in catalytic converters uh, cases across the city. In addition, a firearm that was not serialized, aka a ghost gun, was also located at the scene. The three individuals were booked on various charges, including grand theft, burglaries in the second degree, and tampering with the vehicle, and vandalism. One of the suspects was charged with possession of the firearm with an obliterated serial number. Um, so we've had a rash of catalytic converter thefts across the city, and it's, this is a regional thing as well. Um, so much work is being done on these cases. We do believe it's organized, but this was a good arrest uh, overnight by these officers from Northern Station. Um, auto burglaries, um, cruise vehicle series. Cruise Incorporated uh, has reported that they've been victim of at least eight auto burglaries between October 12th and October 25th, and we believe that involves one suspect. During these incidents, iPhones attached to their vehicle's dashboards were taken. All the vehicles were autonomous with no occupants, and images of the suspect and suspect's vehicle were provided by uh, technology in the automated vehicle or autonomous vehicles. The suspect was identified, excuse me, and taken into custody uh, near the ferry building on, uh, on November 11th, 2022, and charged with eight counts of auto burglary and was found to be on probation from Alameda County for the same types of offenses. We also had a significant uh, robbery. This is a 300 robbery and arrest. 300 block of Bayshore. I'm sorry, this did not end up an arrest uh, yet, but the suspect will be arrested. The victim, who was a security guard, observed two suspects attempting to steal alcohol from the grocery outlet. The victim confronted the suspects and told them to leave, and the security guard attempted to stop one of the suspects as that person exited the store with uh, merchandise. At that time, both bystanders began to uh, join into this incident, and several witnesses began to assist 
prompting the suspects to flee. Actually, these were Good Samaritans. A short time later, a stabbing victim, later identified as one of the suspects, arrived at San Francisco General with multiple stab wounds. Although the stabbing victim stated he received the wounds during the altercation, video of the incident does not show either the security guard and any other witnesses who joined in to help the security guard stabbing the suspect. Um, we believe that we have identified that stabbing victim as one of the robbery suspects. So once his medical condition is cleared, we plan to arrest that person. Another incident to report, and I think I have a couple more minutes, is a robbery with force that resulted in arrest at Portsmouth Square in the Central District. This happened on Veterans Day also on November 11th. Two victims and others were performing inside of the square when the subjects began to yell at them. The victims started uh, recording one of the suspects who then became ang angry and ran toward the victim and the victim ran away. The suspect hit the victim in the back of his head and then took his cell phone. The victim too called 911 and was punched by the suspect. Officers arrived quickly and basically were able to locate the suspect and arrest them very quickly. So uh, this was a really good response and an officer. Both victims were elderly and again, this is just ridiculous and uh, cannot be tolerated. So those central officers who worked that area were uh, in the place that they needed to be and that resulted in a, a great arrest there. Um, the last thing I'll report is just our safe shop shopper strategy and deployment has started. Uh, the Macy's tree lighting was last Wednesday and Union Square uh, is activated with the holiday festivities, the ice rink and our deployment will be increased, not only in Union Square, but in shopping corridors across the city for the holiday season. We have the ambassadors that we rolled out uh, on the west side of the city. We also will have ambassadors and officers deployed in Union Square. Uh, Hayes Valley also on, on Gulf Street, uh, the footbeats have been very, very well received and their deployment resulted in a significant robbery arrest this week as well. But I know I'm out of time. Just want to wish everybody a happy holiday, a happy, uh, very happy Thanksgiving, and we will be out to do everything we can to make sure this is a safe holiday season. Thank you. That was an amazing 10 minutes. <laughs> um, Commissioner Benedicto. I'll be quick. Just one question, Chief. I know a couple of weeks ago we approved a uh, donation of those little small vehicles by, by the Union Square. But are those part of the deployment now? Not yet. We are getting okay. them outfitted, so uh, we can't, well, I guess we have to wait, but we're excited that we'll have okay. uh, they Because they're very, very mobile, so they definitely add to uh, the effectiveness of our footbeat officers. Thank you. Commissioner Yee. Uh, thank you. Uh, Chief Scott, I want to thank your team for, uh, I guess, your hard work over this uh, this week, I know it's going to be tougher going forward as we are down in staff. Um, there was one incident that came up, and it was out over at the Palace of Fine Arts. I guess it was over the social media that I saw too. So, just wondering if we're going to have any staffs out in some of these hot spots, maybe in uh, Palace of Fine Arts, Court Towers. You know, these are we're tourist destinations. Um, to see your thoughts on there. Yeah, thank you, Commissioner, for that. Uh, we do have a detail, it's an overtime detail for tourism deployment. Uh, we will up our deployment at the Palace of Fine Arts. We had, things have gotten better, but um, 
because of that tourism deployment. But as we saw with that case, we need to be in that area um, because it goes up and down. So places like Court Tire, Lombard Street, Palace of Fine Arts, that deployment will be deployed there, including uh, North Beach, Fisherman's Wharf, the Embarcadero. Um, so that will continue through the holiday season, and it's a, it's a it's been a good deployment, and I think we've we've been able to be effective. In addition to that, some of our plain clothes details that are working some of the um, these robberies and these car break-ins also will be deployed across the city. Thank you very much, Chief. Thank you, Thank you. Sergeant. For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item four, the chief's report, please approach the podium or press star three. President Lance, there is no public comment. Thank you. Acting Director Rosenstein, you have time to beat, so maybe you can get it done in nine minutes. Uh, thank you, President Elias. Uh, good evening, Commissioners. Good evening, Chief Scott. Uh, I will try to be quick. Um, with respect to the statistics for this week, uh, we up to, up to today uh, in 2022, uh, we have opened at DPA 601 cases at the same time last year. We were at 695. Um, cases closed up to today, uh, this year, 636. Last year, 781. Cases pending, currently 245. Last year, 274. Cases sustained this year, 53 uh, as opposed to 43 last year. And cases mediated this year, 18, as opposed to 36, same time last year. We do have um, 23 cases that are past the 270-day mark, and 20 of them are told. In terms of weekly trends for the uh, cases that we are seeing, um, we've received 15 cases, and 36% of those cases, uh, the allegations, again, these are not uh, substantiated, uh, we are in the process of investigating these allegations. The top allegation is that the officer behaved or spoke in an inappropriate manner. The second uh, is that the officers failed to take required action. And the uh, several others are tied for third place, including officers failing to write an incident report, misrepresenting the truth, and driving a city uh, vehicle in a gross or negligent manner. Uh, the majority of the complaints came from Mission Station, and um, second was Terrible. Uh, with respect to what we're doing um, in our office uh, with outreach, DPA continues to provide information to the public at SFPD station community meetings. We've expanded our presentation at the meetings to also include information about our mediation program in order to uh, boost those numbers. Um, also, uh, with us today is Nicole Armstrong, who, along with Sarah Monder of our office, um, provided uh, a national, uh, some national representation for our office at the uh, National Association for Civilian of Oversight Law Enforcement, NACOL. Uh, they presented, uh, a, they did a very well uh, attended presentation. Over 100 members of NACOL attended. Um, it was a it was the virtual annual conference for NACOL, uh, and they provided training about upgrading oversight, how to use business analysis to improve civilian oversight operations. Um, we are also in our 
We are also full speed ahead in our audit department. Last Thursday, DPA sent a draft of their first interim report um, about misconduct, the misconduct uh, audit for SFPD's review. And on Monday of this week, DPA and the controller's office started the 24-month follow-up on recommendations made in the use of force audit. Uh, I will have several um, comments with respect to other agenda items, but I'd like to end uh, last but not least uh, and let you know that uh, Sarah Hawkins, myself, and uh, our director of investigations, Eric Baltazar, attended the active shooter training uh, as the, with SFPD members. Um, thank you, Chief, for allowing us to attend. Um, again, it was an excellent uh, training uh, that really hit home for me personally. Uh, I don't know how many of you have children here that are school age in San Francisco, but I do. Uh, and it really uh, helped me understand the amount of work and courage it takes for the officers to respond to active shooter situations and uh, made me very appreciative of their work. I also wanted to let, uh, let you know that we were welcomed uh, by, by all of the uh, different members and, and including the members of FTFO, you know, everyone from Lieutenant Meehan to um, Sergeant Bogarin, you know, uh, there, were, there were tactical sergeants there that were really gracious in explaining the different scenarios to us. Uh, and it was amazing because, again, like uh, CMCR, these classes are full and these classes are volunteer-based. So these are officers that are going out there uh, and, and learning how to risk their lives on behalf of our children. So um, I wanted to give them the recognition that they deserve and to also uh, give Chief Scott and everybody that puts on this complex scenario-based training where officers are literally open, opening doors and getting shot. <laughs> um, I wanted to give them a shout out. It's important to, uh, to, to talk about it. I know that they gave Commissioner Benedicto a shout out, so I'm giving them a shout out. <laughs> um, I also, you know, in that vein, wanted to uh, also give my personal opinion. Um, I, I don't know if it's possible, but in terms of training, these officers are asking for training and volunteering for training. So to the effect, I know that there are a lot of questions and controversies uh, surrounding the budget uh, for, for, our, uh, for SFPD. But to the extent that funds can be earmarked to improve and expand training for the officers, they are ready, willing, and able to uh, participate. And I think it's important for us to keep that in mind. Um, so with that, I just wanted to say thank you. And last but not least, say thank you for signing our certificates for our interns. I know it's a small gesture, but it really means a lot to them to receive uh, the certificates from the commission. And with that, I open it up to any questions or comments that anybody may have. Thank you. I think you wowed the crowd, so it doesn't <laughs> look like there's any. I, I, I strongly urge everyone that is capable of going to go. It's, um, it's one thing to think about uh, how officers respond, you know, uh, Monday, mo Monday morning quarterbacking it as opposed to the three, you know, one to three second window that they have to make these um, important decisions. Um, so I think it, it was a very, very 
valuable training for all of us to attend, and we hope to send the rest of our investigators um, and attorneys to the trainings moving forward. Those uh, scenario-based trainings are very intense. I remember going <laughs> when I first joined, and I think I died in every single scenario. <laughs> so, Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, President Elias. Uh, just one question around, I know that there was dialogue around uh, the MOU development between DPA and the um, police department. Is there any update or progress on that that you could give us? Uh, we did write it. I wrote it. <laughs> uh, and, and I understand that Director Henderson sent a copy to Chief Scott and um, Commissioner, uh, excuse me, President Elias, but uh, I ha I, my understanding is that we have not heard uh, of a, res a response back. Chief, yeah. So we did, we did receive DPA's uh, um, draft and we met with the district attorney this week and got input on the MOU because we've been asked or directed to present both at the same at the same time. So based on what we now know, uh, as far as the, the, the MOU recommendations from the DA's office, we're going to go back to this document and follow up with DPA. We, we probably have some a few things that we want to iron out, but uh, we have the document. It was turned around very quickly, and we'll, we will be on it this week, uh, and hopefully get this done very quickly. Chief, it was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just approve Come it. Come on. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for the update, and I'm glad that that's moving forward because that is an essential element of this transparency. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Sergeant? For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding the DPA director's report, please approach the podium or press star three. President Lyons, there is no public comment. Thank you. Next item. Line item six, commission reports, discussion, and possible action. Commission reports will be limited to the brief description of activities and announcements. Commission discussion will be limited to determining whether to calendar any of the issues raised for a future commission meeting. Commission president's report, commissioner's reports, and commission announcements and schedule of items identified for consideration at a future commission meetings. Okay. Commissioner Benedicto. Uh, thank you, President Elias. A couple of things to report. First, on uh, DGO 9.01, there were uh, two community listening sessions that took place uh, last week uh, with the collaboration of the Human Rights Commission. I again want to thank uh, the Human Rights Commission, uh, Director Cheryl Davis, and their incredibly dedicated staff and volunteers for helping to facilitate these really excellent sessions. Uh, there were two more this week, including one that is wrapping up, I think, as, as we speak, where, uh, where Vice President Carter Oberstone is as well. Um, these sessions have been really tremendous sources of valuable feedback. I want to thank all the members of the community that have attended these sessions. Um, there is a very informative article that was written last week uh, in Mission Local, uh, summarizing some of the sessions last week. Um, overall, I think by my count, there have been at least nine com or ten community listening sessions with these additional ones, which are um, almost double the most we've ever done for Department General Order, which I think 5.01, there were four, um, with one commission meeting held, uh, so you could, you could call that five. Um, you know, the, the process hasn't been perfect. I know that I'm guessing that uh, my friends at Wealth and Disparities are going to are going to point out that uh, in public comment. I really would like to also provide appreciation for Wealth and Disparities for their continuous attention and work on this process. Uh, but I, I do think that it's been uh, 
a significant improvement and there's been a lot of transparency and a lot of community feedback and so grateful to um, members of the community, to members of organizations uh, who have participated in this process. Uh, also last week, I had the privilege of attending the CIT Awards, um, which was uh, a really tremendous uh, privilege recognizing seven incidents um, of really tremendous behavior by officers adopting all the principles that you know, this commission has been reinforcing for the last number of years, de-escalation, disengagement, building rapport. In each of these seven incidents, lives were saved and you really saw our policies working exactly the way they're supposed to. So I really wanna commend all the officers. And what's interesting is the awards both go to officers and public health practitioners with the Department of Public Health who also receive awards for their role on these mixed teams. So I really wanna commend all the officers and uh, public health practitioners, um, both were recognized in these awards, but I, I was talking to the chief after, and it's really hard to recognize just the awardees because there are so many incidents that are resolved through our CIT principles. So I also want to acknowledge the many times that CIT works that aren't specifically called out and awarded, that these principles are playing a role in, in our policing. That's all. Thank you, Commissioner Benedicto. Commissioner Walker? Uh, thank you, President Elias. Um, I had, uh, I think all of us did, had updates on our DGO list and everything on my list is moving forward. There's one um, in particular that we're, there, we're discussing a working group, the, um, the hate crimes um, uh, DGO that um, you assigned me. Um, so we're gonna be moving that forward um, in the near future. Um, I think that because of the holidays, a lot of stuff is being moved off uh, a little bit, but um, it was really helpful to get everybody on board with that, with the, with the DPA and the, the department. So um, also I know that there's a, um, a promotion list out and I sort of um, looked at how it might be moving us back on um, women in leadership in the department and um, just recruiting in general. Um, things that we've talked about and made commitment with. So I had a conversation and there's a strong commitment to, you know, carry forward our 30-30 contract and really get going and um, moving forward. I think we need to all work on recruitment, uh, doing what we can to get people to um, choose this as a career. Um, um, so I'm gonna really be active in that, um, sort of moving that forward. Um, I've also had some meetings with community folks, business um, organizations to help with better coordination between all of our efforts to make, um, you know, to help with law enforcement, to make our streets safe, the ambassador programs, the alchemy groups, um, and, and discussing, you know, the possible training partnerships to, to have these organizations really help us fill in the blanks that we might have because of the fact that we're down in officers. Um, so I'm really excited about that. Everybody's really supportive of, of getting not just these groups, but all of the different departments to work as partners on the, in the streets. Um, you know, there are things that really aren't, um, aren't police jurisdiction, but there, there's no one else to do it. So, um, you know, again, this is one of those things that you asked me to look into, and I, I think that there's a real um, interest from different departments and the supervisors and the mayor and our department to really make that work better. So um, hopefully we can have some more information to share. 
So that'd be great. Thank you. I'd be yeah. really interested in the training they receive, yeah. especially. Well, they don't uh, very much now, but right, that's right. where we could. Yeah, definitely, because I know that you know the Fourth Amendment, civil rights type of stuff yeah. is really important. So we would want them to be trained like our officers yes. are and held to that same Absolutely. standard and yep. adhering to the mission of the department, which is safety with respect. So yeah. I'm excited to hear about yeah. that. Great. So, Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Yanez. <clears throat> Thank you, President Elias. Um, I have a quick report. Uh, I want to thank everyone on your team for setting up a ride-along. I'll be going on a ride-along on the 9th. I'm really excited about that. Uh, it'll be my first ride-along, and I've heard uh, exciting things about that. So um, that's going to take place. Uh, we did, I thought uh, Commissioner Benedicto might give an update, but I will go ahead and just chime in on. We did have a work group meeting uh, for the DGO 701, the juvenile DGO, and that is in... Um, it's in it, it's rolling the work group is rolling there was supposed to be a meeting this week but unfortunately there was a, um, a need to postpone uh, so that uh, is moving along and there we will have a robust uh, conversations because there is some work to do there um, and lastly I met with some folks from the uh, electronic frontier foundation and um, that gave that, that kind of prompted me to to remind myself to ask where we are with regards to the development of the outreach plan and messaging around the collect or, or the request for uh, video feeds from the community and what that documentation looks like. Um, because I know the last time we had a presentation on it, uh, they indicated that the paperwork was being developed, but it'd be great to understand what that rollout is going to look like. And I'd love to agendize maybe a, at six month point, maybe in May or June of next year for us to have like a data crunch on how many requests, what the impact has been, and hopefully we can continue to uh, avail ourselves of the impact, hopefully positive impact that that's had on our uh, safety outcomes. I think we did agendize. You were going to get the forms together with respect to how we're going to track the data, especially the racial data around this and the circumstances. So, yeah, I don't know if it's yet, but we do need to get it on the agenda. Okay. Do you think December or January? I'd like to do it in December. Okay. All right. Uh, Sergeant Youngblood can take care of that. Thank you. And then right. we'll also do the six month. I think that's a great idea, data analysis on it. And lastly, on the community policing, uh, the DGO was just revised in uh, 21. What is going to happen is we're going to get involved in the development of the manual. I think that that's a good way for um, us to chime in on best practices. So thank you very much. Thank you. Have fun on your ride-along. <laughs> Mr. Yee. Thank you, uh, President uh, Elias. I just want to update you on the DGOs. Uh, met up with the staff uh, this Monday right after... Commissioner Walker, so they brought me up to speed. It looks like uh, they've done a terrific job. It looks like most of these uh, DGO has moved forward. So hopefully, we'll, hopefully by the next meeting, we'll be, give you a more detailed status as they update me as well. Uh, also want to thank uh, Commissioner Burns, uh, who also worked on the CIT uh, award ceremonies that went out. We're going to meet this coming Thursday at 1 p.m., I believe to uh, wrap up the final two uh, recipients on there. On regards to Commissioner Walker's uh, working with all the community's um, safety and public safety people in there, I, I'm like you, I'm 
strength in numbers like the Warriors. That's what we have to do. Uh, it's if we can put more eyes on the on the grounds, uh, keep us informed, and, and also this public safety. Uh, looking forward to see it work uh, here in San Francisco. Uh, moving forward, uh, I mean, we have so much resource here. We got the, yeah. we got uh, including police department. We also have the sheriff, uh, traffic officers, you know, ambassadors, and even residents that um, you know can, can also be our eyes and ears that will make it safer for us in the city. So I'm looking forward to that uh, one day going forward. Uh, that's all I have to report. Thank you, Madam President. Thank you, Commissioner Ying, and thank you, Commissioner Benedicto Walker and Yanez for um, really taking the DGOs and running with it and giving us an update. Um, Commissioner Byrne, do you have any updates? Um, I, I, uh, excuse me, uh, <clears throat> President Elias, I gave uh, an update at the last meeting, and I will be prepared to give another one at the next meeting. Great. Thank you very much. Sergeant? For members of the public that would like to make public comment, please approach the podium or press star three. President Lash, there is no public comment. Thank you. Next item. Line item seven. Nope. Line item eight. Presentation of DPA quarterly reports. First, second, and third quarter 2022. Discussion. Good evening, President Elias. <clears throat> And fellow commissioners and Chief Scott, I'd like to introduce uh, our operations manager, Nicole Armstrong, who put this presentation together. And she and I will address any issues that you may have. Um, but this will give you a better overview of the statistical data, uh, because uh, as opposed to the weekly trends that you get, the, these are trends that have occurred over several quarters. Thank you. Welcome, Ms. Armstrong. Sergeant, you want to start the clock when she's ready? All right, as I said, when you're ready, I'm not going to cheat you out of your 10. If you got it done in nine, I, would, I don't think we'd be mad. <clears throat> She's a rock star. You're going to want to hear what she has to say. No worries. Welcome. My name is Nicole Armstrong. I do sound like a frog tonight. I apologize. I'm still recovering from when I was sick with COVID for about two weeks ago. I don't have it anymore, but I still sound like a frog. Um, so if I cough or anything, I apologize in advance. I will probably go quicker than normal because I don't want to sound like a frog for very long. So I uh, also like to say, please be easy on me. This is, since this is my first one in, in person, I might be a little nervous and I might talk even faster than I usually do. Uh, and if I say like a lot, I apologize. All right, so let me begin. All right, so I first wanted to start with the highlights because really I believe in the bottom line up front give you some of the things that we look at really specifically and things that we're proud of at DPA. One, as you guys know from my previous uh, presentation, we're really excited about the proposed, the created and launched the new complaint portal that we were able to do in nine months. I'm so excited that it's working. People are using it. We're getting good feedback and it's just a pretty amazing progress. She's cough drops. Um, we made over 90 policy recommendations uh, to help uh, improve policing, uh, policing. Um, our number one improper conduct allegation is failure to comply with a department general order or a department bulletin. And DPA investigated 68 cases where the events captured on officer's body-worn camera proved to be outcome determinative. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but basically, you know, we're a big proponent on body-worn camera, 
And the reason is, is because when you have body-worn camera, there are cases that we have where we can actually watch the camera and see that the actions the officer took, officer took were proper conduct, and we're able to close it, like close it on its face is what we call it. Um, and so we're just able to close those cases. But we're a huge proponent of body-worn camera and being able to use cases like that. Um, all right, so cases open by quarter. Um, you know, as you'll note, so I always want to show you a comparison of a trend of a couple years of what it looks like through the quarters and what it looks like through the years. Um, and this is the same information, just presented differently because we all have different ways of looking and being able to read information. So what you can see right now uh, through our different quarters, you can see really in 2020 we had a huge spike in numbers. And if you recall, that's when we had our mass cases, uh, the COVID violations, as well as the protest cases that we had. And then in 2020 we had more of a balance and now we're seeing a slight trend downward, but it's starting to go back up as we go into the fourth quarter. Our closed cases, it's a little more of a wonky chart. You guys can see the kind of way it goes down and it waves. Um, at the beginning of 2020, when we changed to our new case management system and we went remote, we started closing cases like crazy. We wanted to get our numbers down. Um, as we closed those cases, we had less cases, cases actually closed down. So you'll see that number kind of settle down until you get to 2022, where we're still closing cases, but at a little bit slower rate. All right, this is what I'm really excited to show you. So when we present numbers to the commission or to anybody, we never want to just look at numbers from, a, just, uh, from internally at DPA. Uh, one of the things we wanted to note, we wanted to look at, because we noticed there was a slight tra downward trend in cases, is is it just DPA that's having a downward trend in cases? And really what I found when we were looking at these cases is that it's actually a national trend is seeing cases going down. Um, and it was actually funny because we reached out to these companies or these other agencies and departments and they were also wondering why their numbers were going down. And they were like, oh, oh you're looking at this nationally. And we're like, yeah, we want to understand, is there a bigger picture involved with oversight across the nation, or is it only San Francisco specific? Um, and we're still just looking at the numbers. But as what you can see on the chart here, you can see there's definitely a significant increase all the way down for all of the major kind of um, operations. You will see some where there is an increase. And what we found is there's an increase in places where they had like new legislation, uh, they were creating their organization, so almost something like a name recognition or brand recognition. So uh, the people that had more of their name in the news or they were seeing more of that agency or what they were doing, they saw more of a higher spike. Um, uh, so we're going to keep looking at these numbers as we go, but um, this is just preliminary information, but it's really interesting to see and to start studying and looking into diving into this data. The one thing I do want to remind you about these national trend data is we're able to look at it from a certain level, but because San Francisco's charter for DPA is so expansive, meaning that we investigate you know, pretty much any type of case that gets brought to us, other agencies don't. So we may not be able to compare the information in like a really robust, right to a micro level, mm -hmm. because some people will only get use of force cases, or somebody will only get to ca get cases that are referred from IAD. So it's, a, it's comparing apples to oranges, but we're still going to look at the data that we can and compare and contrast and see what's going on with the things. All right, so let me get to the meat and potatoes. How does DPA receive our complaints? Honestly, we're receiving them mostly phone and online. But the great news is we're starting to see a trend upwards of people coming into our office. And we're hoping as we continue that more people will be coming in and we'll be able to use our new facilities that I feel like are barely touched because the pandemic happened right after we moved in there. So I'm really excited to actually be able to use it and have more people come into the office so we can talk and tell them about what we do at DPA. All right, so now you're gonna see some kind of a wonky graph. I know this looks a little crazy. I'm gonna explain it to you. I really wanted you to see who our complainants are 
And what you're going to look at on the right-hand side of the graph is going to be the ages, and then on the left you're going to see our ethnicities. Um, the one thing that you're going to notice right away, because it's really obvious, is decline to state is the highest number on both of those charts, right? Why would it be decline to state, right? Why would we have such a high number? Well, that's because we make it so people can actually pick or choose if they want to provide us demographic data. We're not forcing people to do it. Um, and you know, we've also found that sometimes our investigators feel uncomfortable asking these questions. So what are we going to do to fix this? Because that's really what you want to know is like, how do we keep moving forward with these things? And what we've identified is that if we do new training opportunities for our staff to teach them how to be comfortable asking demographic questions, that will help increase the number of the information we get. And also reformatting how we write why we're collecting demographics online. Because I think that's really important because right now we have a very stale we collect this because we're going to use it for statistical purposes. But if we actually change our messaging that makes it a little bit more user-friendly or makes it so people read it better, uh, we're hoping that will increase the number of demographics that we get in our office. Uh, what you can see once you look past the, the decline to state that our highest numbers right now are uh, Caucasians between the age of 31 40 and 40 um, and straight. Um, we are also working on this and about working on doing new outreach and targeting different communities. Um, I know that some of the new, I'm really proud um, as a member of the LGBT community that we're working on a Know Your Rights for LGBT. We're working on Know Your Rights specifically to help specific groups to target communities that we're missing out on. Uh, I'm really excited to be working on these programs and I know as these things keep moving forward, we're going to keep finding new areas that we can increase and help get more people into DPA because we, really we really need the name recognition as we saw. We have to find a way to, to notify people we exist and that if they come in, you know, we're here to help you. So we're going to keep moving forward as we go along. All right. Um, just wanted to give you guys a snapshot of allegations and really for the public, just to understand that we have an allegation level, which is a macro approach of how we look at our cases. And then we have a micro approach. So our macro approach is those big allegation figures like neglect of duty, conduct of becoming, unwarranted action, use of force. And those micro ones are the ones that you guys care about where we go into the fine detail to find out if it's a body-worn camera violation or a Fourth Amendment violation. And I just wanted you to give a snapshot to remind you guys that that's how we look at things. We look at it from a macro level and a micro level. So our allegations we received by type and quarter, no surprise, our number one is neglect of duty. That is pretty much consistent across the board. Neglect of duty, that's going to be the failure to take required action failure to activate your body-worn camera, or failure to comply with a DGO. The next is going to be conduct unbecoming, and this is a comment of um, officers making rude comments or, act or behaving in an inappropriate way. All right, so let me get to the case findings. So as you look between our different quarters for case findings, and this goes quarter three to start because I want you to see what's the most recent, all the way to quarter one, you'll see that um, proper, proper conduct is the number one across the board for us followed secondly by um, insufficient evidence and, um, and insufficient evidence basically means that we can't prove or disprove a case. Um, but proper conduct, having that as the highest is, is something good. Um, I like it when we can identify things with cases and make sure that we have the evidence to prove it one way or another. It always, and excuse me, but it always, if, if I was a complainant, it would suck for me to have to have an insufficient evidence. So our goal, our, like our true goal at DPA, is to make sure we investigate with sufficiency so we can try to answer those questions to the best of our ability. All right, improper conduct. Remember, this is the macro approach. So um, in these quarters, we did 46 um, improper conduct cases, and we had 145 improper conduct allegations. And um, as you can see on here, the most common was neglect of duty and then unwarranted action. 
Uh, this is the micro approach now. We're going to look at the details for what it is for the, the micro one. So you'll notice, so neglect of duty, I took a snapshot of that because remember I said that was the biggest one we have. So I wanted you to see the ones, the top three for that. And as you see, it's a failure to comply with a department order or, or a department bulletin. Uh, next is failure to activate body-worn camera. And then the other side is officer behaved or spoke inappropriately or made a, an arrest without cause. Mediation. We have 17 cases mediated. The one thing to highlight on here is our mediation team is going to roll calls and actually training the officers on mediation. And we've hit about 80 officers so far, and we're going to continue doing that as well as hitting community groups. Policy, Janelle Kaywood back there. Uh, she's done 10 department general orders, analyzed, and lots of work on them. I love working with her. 90 policy recommendations, and has worked really hard on making sure that all of these different policy things have gone on. Senate bill, you guys had that update today, so these numbers are a little off, but we've disclosed 68 cases, 47,033 total pages, and I've seen all of their work and all the pages continue, and they are probably the, some of the hardest working people in our office. Audit, uh, uh, Ms. Rosenstein already kind of covered those. Um, the draft is out now, so this is a little old, so, um, but we're really proud of our audit team and the work they're doing, and Steve is an amazing person that is great to just bounce ideas off of, so. The internship, you guys signed the certificates. We're gonna to hope to have more interns in our office, but we had 16 inter interns, 35 hours of investigative interviews, and over 400 hours of research this year. And finally, I know I'm out of time and you guys are looking at me like you better stop talking, but I'm really excited to let you know again that we presented at NACOL and it was really great and amazing and it was an amazing experience. Um, and we're now analyzing five-year trends across national levels. And I'm excited to let you guys know our next project, we did the complainant portal. Now we're working on trying to design an officer portal to where it will allow the officers to actually look up their case findings for DPA because we want to make it transparent for everyone. We want to make sure that they have that access and our goal is also to make it so it does not cost us a penny. So we're waiting for the next civic bridge and hopefully we'll be able to get it for free. Done, sorry. <laughs> great job, great job. I really liked your graphics. Um, oh, I think thank you. they were really informative. I really loved the analysis of the quarters and then, um, or the, the years and then the quarters. I thought that was really helpful, so thank you. Uh, Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, uh, President Elias. And, uh, congratulations on your uh, successful uh, presentation. It seems like there was a lot of interest, so we're trailblazing in many areas. Um, <laughs> Quick question around, one of your slides had uh, national, tra uh, national trends uh, yes. data around complaints. Are those sustained or just allegations? The national trend is just cases received. Received, got so it. We're, so part of our future is we're going to look at this sustained as well. So we have asked them for their sustained. But you got to remember that some of these cases, so it's that apples to orange. We're going to try to get that data. But because of the other ways that the other oversight agencies review that data, we might not be able to compare that data directly. So we're still collecting that information and then we'll let you know what we can do with it. Okay. And then uh, with the decline to state, do you do any follow-up? Uh, do you inquire about a reason for decline to state? Is there a comment box where they can indicate why? Because I'm, you know, there are many, uh, we can speculate in many different ways about why that happens. Uh, I, from experience, you know, know a lot of people who just, you know, fear retaliation or at least used to fear retaliation, right? I know that doesn't happen anymore, not with our current department, but uh, do we inquire about their reason for that? We do have a really long survey that we send out at the end of it. We're, I'm actually looking at trying to revamp it because 
I know from experience if somebody gives me a long survey, I'm probably only going to make it through the first two pages. And it does cover some of that data. But now that you mentioned it, I actually think I could probably add a box onto our online form and start doing that. Uh, it would also be additional training for the investigators, but I don't see why we can't. It's, it's a great idea. Thank you. If I may jump in, Commissioner Yanez, um, I think it's important to give our complainants a safe space to provide the information. Uh, it's already nerve-wracking for a lot of people and stressful for a lot of people to contact us to begin with, and that's why we always want to give them the opportunity not to have to reveal uh, uh, their identity or information about their identity. For example, um, we at this point also take in anonymous uh, complaints. Sometimes we, we do have complainants that provide us information and then ask us not to contact them anymore. Uh, we think that generally speaking as a policy it's more important to provide that safe area, uh, th that safe opportunity for people to make the complaint and then follow up and investigate uh, than it is to, you know, force them to answer questions that may make them uncomfortable and worst case scenario withdraw the complaint, which is also an option and does occur, uh, not often, but, but does occur. So I think that's the uh, rationale behind it uh, and, uh, and the reason why we don't stress or push very hard on that. Gotcha. Thank you for the clarification. I think a consumer-driven approach is very important. Um, and then the last question, with regard to failure to activate body-worn cameras, right? They are, mm -hmm. As you just said, this benefits everyone, right? Both the officers and the community in general and ultimately safety for all. Um, do we have any idea of um, what the cost would be uh, or what it would take for our department <laughs> to just activate their cameras as soon as we go on? Are there other departments that do that so that we could just have this, you know, clarity? Uh, I think that's probably a better answer, a better question for Chief Scott. What I, I will tell you is that when, I should have probably told you this earlier, is that uh, our office in conjunction with SFPD uh, continues to provide uh, training to officers uh, at stations. <laughs> and giving them trends and kind of what to expect when they, if they have a complaint from DPA and we give them explanations of what we're seeing as the biggest uh, area where officers are getting in trouble basically and body worn camera is one of them and we always, um, and I think I've said it here before, you know, I always uh, tell officers when in doubt, turn it on. But I do think uh, that officers do have some legitimate concerns uh, and I do think there are some jurisdictions, my understanding is Los Angeles is one of them, that, that makes officers turn it on uh, all the time. But I would defer to Chief Scott on that. But we are making every effort to convey to the officers uh, how important it is to turn them on. So, I, and I, I want to clarify one thing on that issue. Uh, there is the issue of them not turning it on at all, which I believe that issue has gone down. Um, what we are seeing is uh, the uh, officers not turning it on fast enough. So um, I, I would just defer to Chief Scott on, on some of your questions. If, if I may, of course, yeah, um, it is very expensive, uh, but there are some privacy concerns with having that camera on, the camera on all the time. You know, officers mm. have to take restroom breaks and things like that, um, administrative conversations and stations and things like that. So. Um, I, I don't think LA turns them on uh, all the time. Their policy is 
very similar to ours in terms of when they turn them on. But one of the things, um, maybe for the future, there's technology, particularly in critical incidents, like that are activated by withdrawals of the, of the firearm mm -hmm. or um, things like that that I think will be helpful. Uh, we don't have any of that yet, but it's out there and it's something that we need to explore. Right. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's important and, and it would just be behoove us to, to explore that direction given how many of these come up. And as she just pointed out, you know, the majority of the time these are going to absolve officers of any wrongdoing, right? So I think uh, as long as DPA is willing to put the time in <laughs> to look at all that footage, I think that that's a, a reasonable direction for us to take or that would be what I'd encourage. Thank you. And if I could stress, I, I think we can't stress it enough uh, that the trend in our findings also reflects um, positively on body-worn camera footage because since body-worn camera footage has been instated, um, we are much more likely to give the officers and the community a definitive answer such as whether the officers acted properly or improperly. Our statistics with respect to insufficient evidence findings have gone down drastically since uh, body-worn camera has been implemented. So, um, and we close cases, I, I, I don't remember, I don't remember what the exact number is, but we also stress the fact that there are many cases uh, now that are closed based on body-worn camera footage alone. We don't have to ask officers any questions because it is clear that what they did and it is clear that they did what, what we expect them to do. Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you, Vice President Carter Oberstone. Um, couple of questions. I know sometimes the answer to these is that numbers will vary from quarter to quarter, but I'm curious, it looks like looking at the case findings by quarter, policy failures pretty much dropped off completely in the third quarter. Is there any particular reason for that or just sometimes there's, there's variance that you can't really? You know, so we often look at, you know, so we're always exploring like what our trends are coming up with and honestly what we're finding is it's, it's really random of how like we, we, one of our things that we really wanted to look at was do our, our cases correlate to like call of services or anything like that. And from what it's, we're looking at so far, we don't really see a correlation. So uh, it's really just the number of the type of cases that we get and when we're able to resolve the case. So because you got to think about it. So we might have a case that can have tolling or we can have a case that's six months. So really it just depends on when we get it and what evidence we're able to get in what time period. So like the quarters, it, it kind of even just rotates about this quarter will have a couple more than this one or not. Um, it's not really any specific reason. Got it. Um, another question I had is, you know, a side benefit of these tremendous listening sessions about 9.01 is members of the public will talk about issues that are not just related to 9.01. And I think one thing that was very interesting at some of these listening sessions was that there are large you know, swaths of the community that have a lot of police interaction that don't know about the role that DPA plays and I wanted to know, it sounds like there's been a really good concerted effort to be at lineup and to work, make sure that, that you know, that officers are aware of the role DPA plays. Is, is there a plan or have there an effort to sort of do direct community outreach to help educate the public on DPA? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I can also take that. She's going to take I, that. Perfect. I think, yeah. I, I, I think that uh, Director Henderson wanted to be here to provide you guys with a um, clearer uh, picture of what we are doing, but we are taking these numbers and taking these trends and, and using the national uh, trends to figure out uh, how we can better uh, assess the needs in our community and, uh, and, and tailor outreach 
uh, to address the specific needs of the community. So these numbers are not in vain. We are taking them, we are analyzing them, we are comparing them to the national trend, and we will be um, using them to drive our outreach efforts moving forward. Great. Um, I, I also wanted for, you know, one question that uh, we received at one of the listening sessions was about the role of body-worn cameras, and I think I want to reiterate everything that's been said about the role they've played. Particularly stark in this presentation was that there were 68 cases in this period where body-worn cameras were outcome determinative, and I think that's a strong endorsement of the positive benefit that adoption of body-worn cameras has had for this department since they were adopted in 2016. So I think that's I think that speaks really strongly. I, I also know that earlier, um, Acting Director Rosenstein talked and, and, and commanded the department and FTFO after attending the active shooter training. I think it's also worth commending DPA for its, its tremendous work and for its recognition. Uh, I, I'm sure if Paul were here, he'd like to point out that on a shoestring budget, DPA does uh, really incredible work and has received recognition from national organizations uh, for its work in civilian oversight and um, that for those members of the public that want to know what DPA does and the role it plays, this presentation is a great, is a great starting point, and I think DPA uh, is to be commended for its, its great work, so thank you. Thank you, I, we appreciate it. I, I know I'm a paltry uh, <laughs> substitute for, uh, for Director Henderson and his abilities to pump us up, but I, yeah, it, it's definitely, um, uh, we are here, we are available to the community, and we welcome any questions um, and any complaints, uh, no matter how small or how large, we can be reached um, online, uh, over the phone, and again in person. Uh, and we have, uh, we have investigators on staff that are able to, uh, you know, drop everything at a, at a moment's notice and address complaints that uh, the public has. So thank you. You, you, you really said shoestring budget, huh? I like that. I just want to uh, add in one last thing. It's a shoestring budget. <laughs> you got a couple million, so. I <laughs> just want to add in just one last point. We actually love doing the DPA presentation. Okay, I actually love doing the DPA presentation, and there's a lot of people in our office that actually really enjoy talking to the community and interacting with them. So if anybody in the, co in the public that wants a presentation or wants a copy of our presentation or wants to learn about DPA, we're here, and we want to do that. I mean, that's why we're in these positions. That's why we, we do what we do, because we love our jobs, right? And so we want, to, we want to educate people, teach people, let them know what they can do. Let them know how to reach the department. We're here and we're available, so. Um, one final question I uh, remembered after Commissioner Yanez. On the national trend slide, you indicated mm -hmm. an overall downward trend um, nationally on uh, oversight civ uh, oversight civilian agencies. Is that due, to, you didn't, speak to the reasons for the downward trend, but is it due to the reform efforts that have been made sort of nationally in the recognition? Because you said the inverse is true, right? Yeah. So we're still looking at the data, so I don't want to go and say anything definitive at this time because we just started really diving into it. Uh -huh. That's some of our suspicions, but as we look at it, we will let you know those details, okay, but enough. I don't want to you know, say something and find out I'm wrong. You know, yeah, because if I, if I ruin the surprise, what am I going to talk about for the annual report, so. Exactly, yeah. exactly. All right. Um, thank you. That was a great job. All right. Thank you, guys. Sergeant. Thank you so much. For members of the public that would like to make public comment, please approach the podium or press star three. And President Elias, there is no public comment. Next item, please.
uh, line item nine, discussion and possible action Mr. to Dunn, adopt police commission, police department, and department of police accountability policy document for the release of personnel records under California Penal Code section 832.7 as amended by SB 16 for meet and confer purposes as required by law. Discussion and possible action. The police commission is revising the existing policy to incorporate changes under the law. Thank you. Commissioners, I think that the title says it all. Um, the city attorney uh, drafted this policy to comport with SB 16. Um, as, the, as you are aware, we took a great deal of effort when we um, drafted the SB 1421 policy, um, and it was a mirror of the state legislation. Uh, and in that vein, SB 16, or the edits that were done um, to include SB 16 were also a mirror of the state policy. Uh, any, oh, com uh, Commissioner Henderson, uh, Director <laughs> Henderson. Thank you. Uh, just wanted to say that, you know, it, it would have been, I know that this commission has a history of giving um, the SFPD and DPA uh, opportunities to weigh in before uh, promoting and accepting policies that affect our respective departments. It would have been great to see a copy of this, uh, at least to proofread it before it went before the commission, because then we would have been very happy to inform you that on page three, we are listed as the Department of Public Accountability. We are, in fact, the Department of Police Accountability. So it would be great if we could uh, make that uh, change to this document and in the future maybe at least get a heads up or an opportunity to engage uh, the commissioners, the city attorney's office, SFPD, and others in the drafting of documents that affect our protocols. Well, if you didn't have a shoestring budget, we would probably get your name right. <laughs> Even on a shoestring budget, I can <laughs> proofread. All right. Um, any other errors, omissions, suggestions? No. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask to make that amendment. Um, on the pages you cited. With that in mind, I'm going to make a motion to adopt with the uh, revisions as discussed. Can I get a second? Second. <clears throat> Sergeant. For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item 9, please approach the podium or press star 3. You didn't like your new name? Diana, you didn't like the new name? Public accountability, we like that. President Elias, there is no public comment. Thank you. <laughs> On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Walker, yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. President Elias? Yes. President Elias is yes. You have seven yeses. Line item 10, Early Intervention System, EIS 2022, second quarter presentation, discussion. All right, who do we have? Uh, we have some big shoes to fill after Ms. Armstrong, so, and you have some time to beat. Hello again. Good evening. Thank you. Stacy, you got a clock? Say it again. Chief, you're the only one that's been on time tonight. <laughs> you see that, right? One minute or oh, two minutes. Oh, okay. He's practicing. Oh, Look at you. Wow, the one meeting I missed, Chief supports. Is that what, is that what we need <laughs> for Max to be gone for you to? <laughs> to the next uh, EIS team. 
Did she break the computer? Blame it on WebEx. Blame it on Department of Public Wait, Accounting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good evening, Commission President Elias, Commissioners, Chief Scott, Acting Director uh, Rosenstein. I almost read Henderson. Okay, so uh, I'm Commander Paul Yep with the Risk Management Office, and uh, thanks for the opportunity tonight to present to you the Early Intervention System, which I'll be referring to as EIS, and specifically we're going to be talking about the second quarter of 2022. So first I'd like to give credit to the team because the content of this presentation has been provided by Lieutenant William Toomey. This is Sergeant uh, Darwin Naval, who actually does the day-to-day work on EIS. Uh, there are two senior analysts, Wendy Leung and Stephanie Swallow. All right, let's answer two questions up front. What are, well, what, you know, why do we have an EIS system and what are its goals? They are to identify performance indicators, uh, the mechanisms for ensuring accountability that may cause liability, extra support during a stressful time, uh, and then capitalized and underlined before an adverse event, and then finally to improve overall employee performance. Uh, I do want to make a distinction that EIS is not discipline, and um, that's, that's, a, that's a point that we drive, want to drive across to our members too, that we do not want EIS equated in their minds with discipline because that's not its goal. Okay. All right, so the current performance indicators for EIS are, they're on the slide, but I'm gonna go ahead and read them. Uh, use of force, officer-involved shootings, officer-involved discharges, those are firearms discharges, uh, EEO complaints, civil suits, on-duty collisions, DPA complaints, IAD complaints, tort claims, and vehicle pursuits. So, um, okay, I'm gonna move on. All right, the current alert threshold. So based on those events and performance indicators, the thresholds are, and you have to bear with me, one officer-involved shooting so, or one officer-involved uh, discharge, so any OIS, essentially. Three or more use of force incidents in a three-month period. Three or more DPA complaints in a six-month period. Any, any five or more indicators that I read to you previously in a six-month period four or more DPA complaints in a 12-month period, uh, any six or more indicators in a 12-month period. So with all these thresholds, these trigger a review for a closer look at patterns, circumstances, and really in, uh, a supervisor and a member talk about what's causing this pattern with, with the officer. Okay, so uh, quarter two is going to be very different from all the other quarters that I've reported on, and I think we should start with uh, talking about our use of force policy um, and an update on that. So I know that this is the first quarter where the revision of 5.01, DGO 5.01, was enacted that that where EIS is capturing that data. So there are three uh, indicators uh, that I'm going to talk about that we believe have drastically increased the EIS alerts. Uh, one is the physical control reporting threshold. Uh, so essentially with 5.01, that changed to a lower reporting standard for use for physical control. Uh, with 5.01, a firearm at a low ready position 
is a new reporting requirement or was a new reporting requirement. Uh, but I do want to mention also the third point, it's, it's inefficiency, that um, with the implement, during the implement, implementation of DJO 5.01, uh, we also uh, implemented a new reporting program in CDW or Crime Data Warehouse. And that made us more efficient also in capturing all this data. So it's obviously, it's electronic. Uh, we actually used to have forms that had to be filled out and routed through the station to our office and then we would move that data onto a database uh, physically. So now we have the ability to do that in CD CDW and um, that's just streamlined and more real time. Okay, uh, next we'll talk about alerts by type. Um, I think what I want to point out in this is there's actually an outlier and in the second quarter of 2022, there were actually two officer involved shootings, one involving one officer and one involving nine officers. So that's very unusual for any quarter uh, in recent history. So, um, you know, the other indicators are pretty consistent with what we've seen in quarters previously. Okay, the members receiving alerts. So 16.2 or 321 of active sworn members generated at least one alert during this quarter. By comparison, uh, that number is usually closer to three or 4%. So that's a significant increase. You know, I'm gonna move on to the next slide because that's gonna show a comparison of just kind of outline the, the increase during this quarter. So here we have alerts by quarter. And there was a 429.2% increase in alerts from quarter one, 2022, um, to quarter two, 2022. So uh, we've even gone back over a year just to show, um, I'll start from the top. So quarter two of 2021, there were 50 EIS alerts. Quarter three of 2021, there were 71. Quarter four of 2021, there were 100. Quarter one of 2022, there were 89, and then quarter two of 2022, 471 alerts. And then just kind of a f drilling down further, uh, use of force uh, for the second quarter of 2022, there were 1,945 indicator points in this quarter. As compared to the previous year during the same time period, there were only 267. All right, so what happens with these alerts? So these alerts are generated every month, sent out to the stations. Um, and then let's, let's talk about what happens to them. So the dispositions themselves, 132 are merged, and that's, uh, actually I'll let Darwin kind of explain what merged means. Hello. Um, so our EAS alert system actually generates alerts every single month and we send those alerts out every two months. So if a member were to generate an alert, for example, uh, March and April, and we were to send those, um, those alerts out, we would just send, we would merge those two alerts and send that out to the station rather than sending two alerts for the same person. So we will merge those two alerts all the data is, is gonna be uh, still there. No data is gonna be lost. We merge those two alerts to pretty much consolidate and send that one alert to the station. Thank you, Sergeant Nabal. 
And then the other uh, thing I wanted to point out on this pie chart is that there are 331, the vast majority, 70% are active and pending review. So that means they've been sent out to the various units or departments and the supervisors are currently reviewing those reports and whatever is included in that package. Okay, interventions. Uh, in quarter one of, and this is just for comparison, in quarter two of 2021, there were no active interventions. There were no new interventions open during that quarter, but there was one intervention closed. In the most current quarter that I'm speaking to, which is quarter two of 2022, there was one active, there is one active intervention, uh, none that were open during the quarter and none that were completed. Uh, outside of an actual intervention through Sergeant Nabal's office, there are engagements outside of EIS, and those include informal counseling, formal counseling, and uh, PIPs, performance improvement plans. Uh, and then I, I did ask for a comparison Q2 2021 to Q2 2022, and there's no real significant pattern there. They're similar enough. Okay, and I'm about to wrap up this presentation. We did want to give you an update on benchmark and our work with um, really merging our systems and then moving over to the benchmark system. Actually, I'm going to actually turn this over to Sergeant Naval to speak to. Yes, so currently in our current phase with benchmark, we are uh, continuing with our data collection. We are con uh, gathering data from our AIM system, from our CDW use of force system. We're gathering data from uh, the Sheriff's Department. So what Benchmark is doing right now is uh, gathering all that data and uh, pretty much validating that data, trying to make sure that data uh, speaks well with their uh, computer programs and algorithms. And they are currently running and assessing data models to see which model works best with our department and will come out with the best uh, and most accurate results. Uh, our next phase with Benchmark is to uh, set up meetings with the working group to uh, get our DGO in line and um, created, and we're gonna be discussing roles and permissions. I would offer in the future that potentially we could have Benchmark actually speak to you directly about the work that they're doing. Okay, and then that, that concludes my, uh, well, I'll say one more thing. So I do know that the commission has uh, reworked, well, the department and the commission has reworked 5.01, so there could be changes in EIS reporting in the future because of that also. So thank you for that. And that, that does conclude my presentation. Thank you. Time, but um, I, I think that'd be a good idea to have Benchmark. I've heard some really positive things uh, about them and the uh, services they provide, and so I was really happy to hear that we were able to transition and utilize them because I think it's going to be an easier system and easier to understand because this is very, it's not easy to understand the EIS system and how it, whether or how it really helps. Yeah, I would just say more technically, technologically advanced, um, more complete, and potentially it's backed by scientific analysis. So. Yeah. Although intuitively, I think our indicators are valid and good. Um, if we have indicators that are backed by science and research, I think that would be an improvement. Great. We love evidence-based practices, so, okay. No, oh. I have one. Commissioner Walker. Um, thank you for this. It's, I'm, I'm trying to understand 
this is new for me. I haven't been here long enough to see this before, but um, I'm curious of the increase. Is that because of a new DGO? I mean, I is it is it is it sort of stricter evaluation? Is that what the increase is about? We I mean, will we. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I think you touched on it. You touched on it after the 5.01 when we came uh, a couple weeks ago. I asked to revise it because some of the feedback was the fact that under the uh, prior 501 that we had revised, there were too many categories in which the officers had to report, and so they were over-reporting, okay. and so it's sort of that number is inflated because of that reason. Okay. When we got the feedback from training and the department that said, "Hey, this is not working for us. This is one of the reasons why." we went back to the table and um, changed the policy to create different criteria for reporting, so. Right. You've pretty much answered that. Chief, did, do you have anything? Well, I was just gonna add that the high level, when 5.01 uh, was revised, the threshold was lowered, so it captured a lot more right. uh, of the force that used, used to not be reported. Right, that's so, what I assumed, yeah. but I just wanted to clarify, so. Right. Great, thank you. I've just said patterns of use of force are a driver of EIS, so any change to that policy will significantly affect EIS. And then as I kind of mentioned in my presentation, although it's not disciplinary, officers uh, really don't like being alerted and being on EIS. So when that number went up significantly, that actually has an effect on um, the entire system. Yeah. Yeah. Commissioner. It seems, yeah, it seems like a very effective in all, what all, all we're doing here, so. Mm -hmm. Commissioner Byrne. Thank you. Thank you, President Elias. It was the same question, uh, Commissioner Walker, like what led to the 472% increase, and you're saying that there was a lower threshold to report things. So you're saying there's nothing significant about that, about the 472 increase, if, if, I, if I'm hearing this correctly. Yeah, the threshold for reportable use of force significantly changed with the old version. Well, well, now it's the new Re old. Revised. Yeah, the revised. Yeah. Well, now it's gone through another revision. So um, the 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 version that was in effect in Q2 2022, as soon as that went into effect, these numbers went up drastically. Yeah. Yeah. So that you, makes sense. you're basically saying this is an outlier. Well, it was a result of. Um, the new definitions and the new thresholds that were put out in 5.01, yes. So you expect to see a drastic decline for quarter, 20, quarter three, 2022? Yeah, I believe this commission just approved the newest version of 5.01, yeah. and then that would affect quarter four of 2022. Yeah, so we so, should expect to see yeah, it, it will actually yeah. be quarter one because we yeah. plan to activate uh, December 8th. Was 30, the, yeah. yeah, they gave us, the, yeah, we gave right. you time. So, and, and I believe it will normalize. I mean, it, yeah. it will still be higher because the threshold is still uh, lower than it was previously. But because we've ironed out a lot of, uh, the, from the feedback, it will normalize, I yeah, think. And it, it, will go, it will go down some. Okay, well, we'll be back anyway to hear about it. Yes, Thank sir. you. <laughs> All right, Commissioner Yanez. 
Thank you, President Elias. Um, and thank you, Commander Yip. Uh, I think uh, we are in contact around the EIS system and potentially setting up a benchmarks presentation. I think uh, that will Great. be beneficial to everyone. Um, just two questions on the uh, on this report. What does an intervention or a closed intervention entail? Well, what does an intervention entail, and then what leads to a closure of such an intervention? Yeah, I'm going to let Sergeant Naval, because he's directly involved in the intervention, I'll, I'll let him speak to that. Yes. Yeah. That's a, a great, uh, great question, Commissioner. Uh, interventions is is very they're very um, unique to each individual. So uh, the intervention plans are created in partnership with the member who received the alert, partnership with their uh, PIP sergeant, and in partnership with the EIS unit. And we collaborate to work out the best plan to address what the issues are. If the issues are time management, um, the intervention plan could be as simple as giving that member uh, a calendar you know, book and having the PIP sergeant check it every month to make sure that um, schedules are, are written in that calendar book. Um, it could be, if it has something to do with use of force, the intervention plan could entail setting up private lessons with the PTDT staff at the police academy, along with taking tra online training on the post-learning portal. Um, it can also entail just as simple as a, a check-in with our BSU unit, our behavioral sciences unit. So each intervention is unique to each individual. Uh, what happens is at the, there are check marks at 90 days, 180 days, and one year. So at the one-year mark, uh, the sergeant will, the PIP sergeant will conduct a final evaluation and determine if the intervention was successful or unsuccessful. And they will dis discuss the intervention with the member, they'll discuss the intervention with their commanding officer and inform the EIS unit. Great, thank you. And do these, uh, whether they're PIP plans or actual interventions that are documented, do they inform a performance evaluation in any way, shape, or form? Uh, oh, um, well, the, each, every time a, a member receives an EIS alert, uh, sergeant conducts a performance evaluation. I'm not sure if that's the same performance evaluation you may be I'm thinking uh, more of about. traditionally a performance evaluation. You set goals for the year. You, you know, use these to inform who gets a promotion. I mean, it's a system, right, that we're yeah. supposed to have to ensure that we're doing an equitable uh, administration of our duties, right? Yeah. So this is outside of the normal performance uh, appraisal system. So this is in addition to, so it doesn't replace it. Uh, it it's actually more robust, and it's, it's, it, would, it would be from the same supervisor. So it would be an additional tool in addition to the regular performance appraisal cycle. So it is incorporated into the evaluation in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, they're going to be related uh, because it both directly are um, – speaking to the performance of the officer. Right, and, and that's the reason why I'm very interested in this issue, obviously, um, not just because I'm gonna be uh, working on the revision of the DGO. I know that, you know, just uh, the framing and the connotation that discipline has 
Um, you know, right now it's a negative connotation. I think that discipline is something that everyone in this department already kind of displays, right? And so further discipline doesn't necessarily have to have that negative connotation. It's about raising awareness and really determining and ensuring that a senior officer or supervisor can help develop and improve the performance of an uh, officer, right? So I'm this is helpful in understanding the overall system, and uh, I'm, I'm, you know, excited to um, engage with you in this process further, right? Because I think these are practices that are tried and true almost in any field, right? Bringing things, bringing things to the attention of someone when there's a need to improve, and uh, it's it's helpful, we know, but when the alerts don't lead to performance improvement plans, then sometimes the officers may not feel that there's anything to improve around their performance, right? So I think it's all uh, interconnected in one way, shape, or form. Yeah, and you hit the nail on the head. This whole program is designed to identify indicators prior to the officer running into some discipline issue. So the department does spend a lot of effort and time and um, resources into trying to do exactly what you said. Yeah. Thank you, Commissioner Annan. Sergeant? For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item 10, the EIS presentation, please approach the podium or press star 3. As Elias, there is no public comment. Great. Next item. Great job. Welcome. Great. Thank you, Commissioners. Have a great evening. You too. Thanks. Line item 11, public comment on all matters pertaining to item 13 below closed session, including public comment on item 12, vote whether to hold item 13 in closed session. If you'd like to make public comment, please approach the podium or press star three now. And there is no public comment. Thank you, next item. Line item 12, vote on whether to hold item 13 in closed session, San Francisco Administrative Code section 67.10, action. Uh, I'm going to vote to hold uh, item 13 in closed sen session. Second. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do yes. you vote? Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. And President Lyons? Yes. President Lyons is yes. You have seven yeses. We are in closed session. TV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television. And then we won't know which one it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, President Lyons, we are back in open session. Okay. Next line, item. Line item 14, vote to elect whether to disclose any or all discussion on item 12 held in closed session. San Francisco Administrative Code section 67.12A. Action. Move not to disclose. Second. On the motion not to disclose, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Oberstone? 
Yes. Vice President Carter Oberstein is yes, and President Elias. Uh, yes. President Elias is yes. You have seven yeses. And public comment? Members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item 14, please press star three or approach the podium. President Lyons, you have no public comment. Fantastic. Next item. Line item 15, adjournment action item. Yay. Five minutes, Larry. Five minutes.